It was another perfect day in paradise. Sister Sorrenta could feel the warm golden sand between her toes as she walked barefoot along the beach. Saxic, the fire lord, was high in the sky, making the waves shimmer as they rolled gently onto the shore, sending bubbling sheets of sparkling water dancing over her feet. A gentle breeze cooled her brow, tempering the heat. She glanced down at the wicker basket she was carrying. A few juicy red glasnoberries rolled around at the bottom, but only a handful. She knew she should have had a full basket by now. Laylora provides, she thought to herself with a smile, but we still have to do our bit. She started back into the forest to find the others. Her brother, Purin, and his friend, Arak, were digging a new killing pit. The animal traps the tribe of the Three Valleys used to catch wild pigs. Sorrenta was meant to be helping them by weaving a cover for the pit from vines and leaves, but she'd got bored and had decided to go and find them something to eat instead. As she walked back through the trees, she could feel herself tensing up. The forest was quite dense here, and a thick canopy of leaves cast deep shadows. Despite the afternoon heat, she started to shiver. Something was wrong. She could feel it in her bones. For the first time in her life, Sorrenta found herself frightened by the forest that she knew so well. As she approached the place where the boys had been working, it seemed to get even darker. She could hear something moving ahead of her. Was it a boar? Had one stumbled into the killing pit before it was finished? And if it had, were Purin and Arak all right? Sorrenta called their names nervously as she got nearer, unable to hide the alarm in her voice. There was no answer. She stopped in her tracks. Something was moving towards her. Something large. Sorrenta turned and ran, scarcely able to believe her eyes. It couldn't be. It was impossible. She must have imagined it. But there was no doubting the crashing sounds made by the thing that was now chasing her through the trees. She glanced back over her shoulder and got another fleeting impression of the creature behind her. This was no wild boar. It was a biped like herself, but much larger, hairy and bestial-looking. Vicious, sharp talons at the end of each arm were slicing through the forest like machetes. She ran on blindly, fear driving her forward. She was nearly back at the beach now, but there was no let-up in the sounds of pursuit. As her feet began to run on sand rather than earth, she risked another look over her shoulder and paid a terrible price. Her foot caught on a piece of driftwood, and suddenly she was flying through the air. She landed heavily on the beach in a cloud of soft sand. Coughing, she rolled over onto her back and found herself in the shadow of the beast. Staring up at it, she realised that she had been right. All her life, Sorrenta had heard stories of the mythical monsters that were said to appear when her planet was in danger, but she had always thought they were just tales to scare children. Yet now, one of these legendary protectors of Laylora was right here, looming over her and blocking out Saxit's light. Her last thought, as the beast knocked her unconscious, was that nothing would ever be the same again. The Whittaku had risen.
Doctor Who, The Price of Paradise, by Colin Brake, read by Sean Dingwall. In the darkness of deep space, in an absolute vacuum, very little ever happens. In this particular part of space, nothing much had moved for thousands of years. Until now. Without any warning, space and time burped, warped and wibbled. And, where a moment ago there had been nothing, a spaceship appeared. The SS Humphrey Bogart had started life as a rich man's toy, a sleek speedster for nipping around the owner's home system between the numerous houses he had on different planets. Unfortunately, the man's fortune had not been entirely the result of honest endeavour, and when the authorities finally caught up with him, the spaceship had been one of the first of his assets to be repossessed. The tax authorities had used it for a while, but then it had been commandeered and pressed into military service in a nasty and protracted space war. Finally, many years later, and almost a wreck, it had come into the possession of its present owner. Professor Petra Shulu, the academic and explorer, had decided that it would be the perfect vehicle for her explorations. In truth, the only perfect thing about it was the price. Designed originally for a crew of 30, the manuals claimed that it could fly with a bare minimum manning level of 12. The professor wasn't keen on technicalities like safe manning levels. Her crew numbered just four. Her captain, Major Kendall, and three youngsters, two fresh out of the Space Naval Academy and one bored rich kid. In space, as the old saying has it, no one can hear you yawn, thought trainee pilot John Hespel as he sat watching the readouts on his screen cycle through yet another automated sequence. Once again, the ship's AI ran the standard scans, testing the results against the incomplete data Professor Shulu had provided. A flashing green light from his screen caught his eye. Something new at last! The scans had made a match. He spun around in his seat and cleared his throat to attract Professor Shulu's attention. You have something? she demanded, but he didn't need to answer as she had already started to take in the information on his display. If Hespel had expected a smile, he was to be disappointed. There was barely a shift in the tone of her voice, perhaps just the slightest hint of excitement. Plot a new course, Mr Hespel. If this scan is right... We're about to finally reach the Paradise Planet. Brother Rez and Sister Kalen knelt quietly in front of the table of gifts. The big stone altar was the centrepiece of the main chamber of the ancient temple. In front of them, the shaman himself was walking back and forth, muttering a ritual chant and scattering gin and powder on the floor. Kalen glanced sideways at Rez, catching his eye. She had to bite her lip to stop herself from bursting out laughing, despite the seriousness of the situation. Rez narrowed his eyes, urging her to get a grip. Caden looked at him and smiled. How he had changed since she had found him all those years ago. 
She'd been only a child herself, but she could remember the day they met as clearly as if it were yesterday. It had been the sound that she had heard first, a sharp, cracking retort like a massive tree being split by a giant's axe, then a rumble like her father's snoring, but much, much louder. Caelan looked up and was shocked to see a plume of black smoke stretching across the sky. Something was falling. She followed the smoke with her eyes and saw a dark object at the front of the plume. As she watched, it plummeted into the forest with a final scream of sound. Caelan decided to investigate. Something had torn through the forest, uprooting trees and scorching vegetation, leaving an ugly scar. Eventually, it had torn a groove into the ground itself, a deepening channel that was still smoking as Caelan gingerly followed it. Finally, she reached the object itself. It was a metal egg, blackened and burnt after the rapid descent. Caelan had never seen anything like it before in all her six years. Despite her fears, she crept closer. She was trying to remember the stories that Brother Hugan was always telling the children, about the old days when Laylora's guardians would stalk the land. Was it possible that the Whittaku were born from metal eggs like the one in front of her? Brother Hugan said that the Whittaku would return if they were needed, but the Whittaku only attacked to protect Laylora, didn't they? Caelan was sure she had done nothing to upset her planet. Hardly daring to breathe, Caelan reached the object. It was steaming hot. The air above it rippled in an intense heat haze. Suddenly, there was a hiss of escaping air and a hatch began to open. She looked inside. Caelan could hardly believe her eyes. This was no monster from myth and legend. Small and helpless, with chubby little arms and chubby little legs, it was a baby. That had been fifteen years ago. Now that baby was glaring at her and asking her to take the shaman's ritual seriously. Rez had grown into a handsome young man, fit and tanned and taller than most of the Laylorans he lived among. Despite the age gap between them, Caelan and her stepbrother were very close. It was because of Rez that she found herself here today, in the ancient temple, trying not to laugh at the shaman. It seemed to Caelan that the years had not been kind to poor Brother Hugan. When she was a child, she had been terrified of the shaman and everything he stood for, but now all that had changed. He cut a rather sad and pathetic figure, dressed up in his bright robes and his myelin feather headdress. Underneath the carnival costume, Brother Hugan was just another old Laylorin, who had a sad obsession with the way things used to be. Ironically, it was Rez, the outsider, who had most time for Brother Hugan and his stories of the old ways. Perhaps it was because... As he grew older, he became more aware of the things that set him apart from the others and sought a way to integrate himself more closely with the tribe. So when other young Laylorans poked fun at the shaman and ignored his stories, Brother Rez took it all in. And where Brother Rez went, Sister Caelan went too. When Sorrenta, Purin and Arak disappeared, 
Brother Hugen had announced that they would need to make an offering to Leilora at the ancient temple. Rez had immediately volunteered himself and his stepsister to assist in the ritual. Sister Kalen, will you assist me with the ginnera? Kalen nodded and crossed to the fire that was burning in a grate in the corner of the room. A kettle of liquid was bubbling away, suspended from a frame. Kalen carefully removed the kettle and poured the thick brown liquid into three ancient carved wooden cups. After they had placed their cups on the altar, the shaman raised his arms high in the air. Oh, mighty Lelora, the provider of all, we, your humble servants, ask for your kindness. There was something wrong. The surface of the liquid was vibrating. No, not just the liquid. The cups themselves were shaking and moving. Suddenly, Kaelin found herself staggering as the earth beneath her feet moved. Now the whole temple was shaking. What is it? Rez asked his stepsister. But it was the shaman who answered him. It's Lelora. She's angry with us. Then, as suddenly as it had started, it was all over. The ground beneath their feet felt solid again. I don't understand, Kalen complained. Why is Leilora angry? Brother Hugen shook his head. It's another sign, like everything else. That's why those three youngsters have disappeared. Leilora is angry and we will all perish in her wrath. He turned on his heels and stalked off, leaving the ritual unfinished and the spilt ginera offering pooling on the ground. The mood on the bridge of the spaceship was tense. The Humphrey Bogart was entering the outer reaches of a solar system, but it was not a straightforward approach. A massive cloud of meteorites and planetary debris made an almost impenetrable barrier. As soon as it became clear that some very fine piloting would be required if the ship was to pass through this belt unscathed, Hespel had relinquished the helm to the captain. Major Kendall was Professor Shulu's right-hand man. Like the ship, the Major had seen action in wartime and bore the physical and mental scars to prove it. Hespel looked on in awe as the veteran space marine steered the ship manually. Kendall had nerves of steel and the reflexes of a panther, a winning combination. Nevertheless, Hespel found he had to remind himself to breathe as he watched their slow forward progress. He looked around the bridge and saw that the rest of the crew were reacting in the same way. At the communications console, even Jay Collins, whose perpetual air of boredom always rankled with Hespel, seemed tense. Jay, born to a family of intergalactic lawyers, had never had to work for a credit in his life. Hespel couldn't quite work out why he had volunteered for this mission. Perhaps he had expected it to be more exciting. Well. It was certainly getting exciting now. The final member of the crew sat beside Hespel at the navigational and ship management consoles. Hespel let his gaze linger on Anya Baker for a second. The pretty, petite brunette with a round, open face looked as fragile as a porcelain doll, but he knew she was a tough cookie underneath. At the back of the crew, Professor Shulu was leaning against the wall, looking utterly relaxed. It was amazing. Hespel wasn't sure exactly how long the professor had been searching for this mysterious planet, 
but he knew it was a matter of years, not months. How could she be so cool now that they were on the verge of finding the holy ground that she had been searching for all this time? The young pilot wondered if she was quite human. Professor withdrew. Kendall's speech was a low growl at the best of times, but even Haspel could hear the relief in his voice. On the main screen, a beautiful green-blue gem of a planet could now be seen. Was this really the fabled paradise planet? Without warning, the ship suddenly shook violently. Every console on every instrument fell dark. Then the spacecraft began to spin. Are we under attack? It was the professor from somewhere over his shoulder. Some kind of electromagnetic pulse, came the calming tones of Kendall. Electrical power is out. The emergency generators are coming online, but we can't reboot all the systems at the same time. Life support? Priority number one. Then defence shields and engines, but we're caught up in the gravity well of the planet. I can't maintain this orbit. We'll have to try and land then. It might be a bumpy ride. Hold on. While the Majors struggled to save their lives, Hespel set about his own emergency task, which was to launch a distress beacon. Battery-powered, it would send out a looped SOS signal into deep space. As Hespel launched the beacon, he couldn't help crossing his fingers for luck. He knew they would need it. Their search for the Paradise Planet had taken them far from the busy space lanes and more populated areas of space. Was anybody likely to hear their cry for help? Leaving Rez at the temple to clear up, Kaelin hurried back through the forest alone. She wanted to make sure everyone in the village had survived. Having seen the devastation at the temple, she was worried that the tents would have been utterly destroyed. Suddenly her foot caught on a root and she found herself flying forward. Kaelin hit the ground awkwardly and winded herself. As she lay on her back for a second, trying to catch her breath, she heard a noise that she had heard just once before. A resounding boom echoed around the sky, sending thousands of birds squawking into the air. She looked up and was not disappointed. It was happening again, just like before. Ugly black smoke was scrawled across the sky. Something was coming. Something alien. Rose watched as the doctor hurried from panel to panel of the TARDIS console, tweaking settings, flicking switches and tapping the odd readout. This was one of her favourite parts of time and space travel, the last minutes inside the ship before stepping out into... who knew what? Rose wondered idly what might be outside this time when she walked out of the police box doors. Disturbing her reverie, without warning... The TARDIS shuddered and jerked violently, sending her flying. The console room was filled with an urgent screeching alarm. What is it? she asked. Alarm of some kind, came the answer, as the doctor's hands moved with amazing speed over the controls, trying to locate the source. I sort of knew that, said Rose. But what kind? Red alert? Mauve? Orange? Is, is something up with the TARDIS? The doctor shook his head. No. It's not one of ours. It's an intergalactic mayday. A starship is in trouble. On the planet's surface, in the area of Laylora inhabited by the tribe of the Three Valleys, a sudden wind whipped up from nowhere. 
Accompanied by a tremendous rasping sound, a blue box appeared, faint at first, but rapidly becoming solid. With a final thump, the TARDIS finished its arrival. A moment later, the doors opened and Rose appeared, wide-eyed and intrigued to discover where they had landed now. Wow! she gasped and took a couple of steps forward. The ground was mossy and springy under her feet and the air was slightly sweet. To one side of her, Rose could see a rich green forest disappearing into the distance, where she could faintly make out glorious snow-tipped mountains. In the other direction was a perfect desert island beachfront, consisting of endless white sands and a beautifully inviting turquoise sea. Are you sure this is the right place? The doctor put his arms on her shoulders and gently turned her around. How about that? He pointed behind the TARDIS, where, in the far distance, an ugly column of thick black smoke rose from the forest floor. Oh, said Rose. Couldn't you have parked a bit closer? When Hespel came round, the first thing he did was to check his own condition. Arms, then legs, nothing broken, good. Apart from the odd cut and bruise, it transpired that none of the crew had been injured in the crash and the damage to the ship itself appeared to be minimal. Once power was back online, the maintenance systems would need about 48 hours before they could make any attempt to take off, but, all things considered, they had definitely had a lucky escape. The Professor, a firm believer in a belt and braces approach to any problem, had obtained a backup power supply at their last port of call. It was still in the main cargo bay, and it took a while to hook up to the ship's systems, but within half an hour it was working, and the ship's central computer systems came back online. Kendall watched carefully as the Professor hunched over her computer, her face fixed as she studied the data from various scans. He had known Petra Shulu all her life and was well aware of just how much time and energy she had put into this search. He knew she must be excited to finally be on the surface of the planet she had dreamed about for so long. But there was no sign of it on her face. As ever, she was the picture of calm professionalism, her face set and determined. This is it, she confirmed, her voice as level as ever. Are you sure? he asked, but even as he spoke, he knew it was a rhetorical question. Petra Shulu would never have made the claim unless she was certain. No doubt in my mind. It'll take some time to prove it for sure. But this is the Paradise Planet. This is Laylora. Rose and the Doctor were enjoying their walk through the forest. The plume of smoke had now blown clean away and, if it hadn't been for the way the Doctor kept taking readings on the sonic screwdriver every five minutes, Rose might have forgotten why they were here. This way, said the Doctor, slipping the device back into his pocket. Is there anything the sonic screwdriver can't do? wondered Rose. The Doctor looked a little hurt. Plenty. Well, it's still pretty useful. He stopped suddenly and she had to skid to avoid crashing into his back. In front of them was a collection of ruined buildings. There were a dozen or so distinct properties in various states of decay and a few more complete buildings, in the centre of which was a large edifice. So what is it? A secret city? 
Rose asked. The doctor shook his head. I'd say it was some kind of religious site. High priests, sacrifices, that sort of thing. The doctor shot her one of his wildest grins. If we're lucky. The biggest building was a particularly impressive structure. Rose was reminded of St Paul's Cathedral in London. The lower walls were inclined at a slight angle for about three metres and then curved sharply inwards, continuing at a less extreme angle to form a curving roof. In the middle of this roof was a tapering, wide-based tower, at the top of which was a small observation platform. The doctor was in his element, fascinated by every detail. At intervals along the lower walls, huge panels were carved with shapes and images, and other panels featured crude paintings. Fascinating, he murmured. Rose wasn't so impressed. Matchstick men and matchstick cats and dogs, she commented. And matchstick monsters, wondered the doctor. He indicated a few of the crude figures which were markedly larger than the others. The creatures seemed to have four arms. Uh, I thought we had an emergency to attend to, Rose reminded him. The doctor jumped up. Of course. You're right. Now, which way is it? Rose looked around and realised that their detour into the ruins had caused them to lose their bearings. The doctor tried the sonic screwdriver but couldn't get a clear reading. Something in these stones is blocking the signal, he speculated. And then, much to Rose's surprise, he started to climb up the side of the main temple. I'll get a better view from up there, the doctor shouted back down at Rose, waving in the direction of the observation tower. Maybe even a clear signal. Don't wander off now. The heat was making Rose feel drowsy, but as soon as she had closed her eyes, she heard something moving nearby. She sat up and looked around. Was it the doctor on his way back? She stood up to gaze at the temple roof and could see the distant figure of the doctor disappearing around the back of the tower as he climbed the spiral steps. Then she heard the sound again. It seemed to be coming from a small building to one side of the main temple, a long, thin structure with a single entrance. Rose reached the doorway and peered in. Hello? Is anybody there? Rose asked. She could just make out a movement. She took a step back and immediately tripped on the uneven floor. A figure appeared in the entrance. From her prone position, it looked like some kind of animal. Rose had a fleeting impression of a huge, hairy body, but her eyes were drawn to the creature's hands, which terminated in shimmering talons 30 centimetres long that were slicing through the air towards her. Closing her eyes, she threw herself to one side and, to her embarrassment, cried out in terror. You can keep your computers and your scans, Kendall told Hespel solemnly. But if you're going to put your life and the lives of others in any danger, then there is no alternative but to examine your ship yourself. The ex-marine didn't just mean having a quick walk round to check that everything was in order. He meant a proper fingertip examination of the entire exterior of the ship. So far, all the damage they had found was merely cosmetic, but they had yet to approach the crucial areas at the rear, where the propulsion units were to be found. Hespel looked out towards the forest that surrounded them. The forced landing had knocked over a number of trees and created the clearing they now rested in, but beyond that the forest was thick and dense on all sides. 
he felt a sudden chill as he realised that the foliage he was looking at was moving. Was it the wind? Sir? Kendall picked up the hint of alarm in the younger man's voice. What is it? Hespel raised an arm and pointed in the direction of the movement. There's something out there. It was a massive four-armed figure, covered in thick black hair like a gorilla. Each of the four arms ended in a massive paw, from the back of which long, sharp talons emerged. Looks like the natives might not be friendly, muttered Kendall, bundling the younger man towards the nearest airlock. He risked a quick backwards glance to see how much time they had, and instantly wished he hadn't. The creature was not alone. There were two more of them. Gasping for breath, he reached the airlock and all but fell into the chamber. Instantly, Hespel hit the controls and the outer doors slammed shut. Kendall took a moment to recover, while Hespel opened the inner doors and reached for the intercom. All hands! We are under attack from native life forms! Seal the ship! Rose was certain that the next thing she felt would be sharp pain as those vicious talons sliced into her. But the fatal blow never came. It's okay. You're safe. It was the monster. Only it didn't sound very monsterish. Gingerly, Rose opened her eyes. It wasn't a monster at all, but someone in a monster costume. Where the fearsome monster's head had been, a much more attractive human head was sticking out of the monster's shoulders. The clawed paws were merely gloves, which were quickly shrugged off. The boy, Rose would have guessed his age at around seventeen, reached a hand towards her, and she resisted the instinct to flinch. He gently brushed the hair away from her face, and with hesitant fingers stroked the top of her ear. Rose gave an involuntary shiver. You're like me, he said. The same race. Human, Rose whispered. You're human. The boy looked into her eyes and smiled a grateful smile. My name's Rose, she stuttered, suddenly nervous. Feeling terribly self-conscious, she offered him her hand. Rez, offered the boy by way of reply. Instinctively, he took her proffered hand, but not knowing what to do with it, just held it. You're meant to shake, explained Rose kindly. A frown flitted across the blonde boy's face and then he started to shake his entire body. Rose couldn't stop the laughter bursting out. Her new friend started laughing too. Soon the pair of them were helpless, leaning against each other for support, the discarded monster costume forgotten at their feet. The view from the observation point was breathtaking. The doctor could see for miles in every direction, and every point of the compass offered a stunning vista. This planet truly was a beautiful place. But it was more than just a visual thing. It felt wonderful too. The doctor couldn't be sure exactly what it was. Perhaps the gravity, which was just slightly less than Earth's. Perhaps it was the atmosphere which seemed to have a little more oxygen in it. Or perhaps it was simply one of those feel-good planets you found now and then where everything was just right. He started scanning the horizon for signs of the ship's descent. They weren't hard to find. The ship had damaged a strip of forest as it came in to make what had clearly been a poor landing, 
and this acted like a giant arrow pointing to the crash site. Making a mental note of the direction he would need to take, the doctor began the long trip back to ground level. As he skipped down the stairs, he continued to cast glances out towards the crashed spaceship. Was that movement he could see? Something crashing through the forest from the landing site and moving towards the ruins? The doctor had a sudden bad feeling and increased his pace, desperate now to get back to Rose. Having been unable to breach the spaceship's defences, the creatures had retreated into the forest. Kendall decided that they should follow them. The ex-marine led the way, plasma rifle cocked and ready in his hands. Hespel and Collins followed. Kendall waved a hand to slow them down. Up ahead was a clearing in which some stone buildings, most of them in a ruinous state, could be seen. Using what cover they could find, the three humans crept closer to the ruins. In the centre of the clearing was a large building with a tower built on top of its roof. Was it the creature's lair? A movement on the lower part of the roof caught Hespel's eye. Had one of the creatures been watching their progress? Instinctively, he raised his weapon and took aim. The doctor was nearly on the ground and was about to call out to Rose when he saw the humans. He could see that they were armed and their movements suggested that they were expecting trouble, which could be bad news for any strangers they might encounter. Trigger-happy humans were, in the doctor's experience, the worst kind of humans. He had to get down there quickly and defuse the situation before anyone got... The doctor never finished his thought. A blast from one of the soldiers hit him, stunning him instantly. As they reached the temple doorway, Rez suddenly stopped and indicated that Rose should be quiet. Across the ruins, she saw what looked like another human, but this one was dressed in some kind of uniform and, more worryingly, was carrying a weapon. Suddenly, the man with the gun was reacting to something above eye level. He raised his weapon. A cold dread hit Rose in the stomach. She was about to shout a warning, but Rez grabbed her. Rose watched helplessly as the man fired a blast, and a moment later the unconscious figure of the doctor rolled off the roof and fell to the ground. Two other humans, also armed, joined the man who had shot at the doctor. Rose and Rez watched as the three strangers had a hushed conversation. The doctor's eyes flicked open. As Rose watched, he gave her a deliberate wink and then closed his eyes again. He's playing possum, she thought to herself, and he wants me to go along with it. The oldest of the three strangers, who looked to be in charge, checked the doctor and, satisfied with his condition, ordered the other two to pick him up. With a last quick look around the ruins, the leader led his two juniors and their captive away. They must have come from the crashed spaceship, Rose decided, and now he's letting them take them there. But he's expecting me to follow, I'm sure he is. Rez shook his head firmly. I can't just let him go, Rose told him angrily. It's getting dark. The forest is dangerous at night. We'll find your friend at the crash site in the morning, I promise. Rose could see that Rez was being practical, but that didn't mean she had to like it. So what happens till then? Rez considered for a moment before taking her hand and leading her away. I'll take you to the village. You'll be safe there. Their arrival caused a bit of a stir. 
Rez led Rose through the crowd to a particular tent where she was introduced to his adopted mother, Jaylette, who instantly gathered her into a warm hug. Then a girl who seemed to be a couple of years older than Rose appeared from within the tent. Rose, this is Kaylin, my sister, Rez said. She's like you, exclaimed Kaylin, and there was an odd mixture of surprise and sadness in her voice. What did she mean, like him? And then Rose noticed the girl's hand, which was grasping Rez's arm. She had only three fingers. Three fingers and a thumb. And the other hand was the same. Now, as she looked more closely, Rose could see that all the Laylorans had the same number of fingers. They had rounder eyes and flatter noses, and their ears were gently pointed. No wonder Rez had checked out her ears when they'd first met. They might not be as weird-looking as the mocks of Balhoon or the Ood, but these were aliens. I don't understand. You're human, but they're not. Is that right? she asked Rez. We found him when he was a baby, in a little skyboat, explained Jaylette. Rose nodded, just like Superman, but without all the super strength and X-ray vision, she thought to herself. But didn't anyone come looking for you? she asked. You must have come from somewhere. Rez shrugged. I don't know. Rose persisted. Somewhere out there, someone must know who you are, where you come from. You might have relatives, parents. The tribe are my family now, Rez told her solemnly. Brother Hugan would want to see her, Kaylin said, interrupting their discussion. Rez nodded and led Rose towards a large tent that was more gaudily decorated than most. Brother Hugan is our shaman, he explained, so Rose wasn't surprised when the tent flap was pulled back and an extraordinarily attired Laylauren appeared. He was one of the oldest natives she had seen up to now, with skin so weathered by the years that it looked like leather. His face was decorated with stripes of makeup and a heavily jewelled necklace hung around his neck. Lelora is angry, announced the shaman. She will call forth the Whitaku. We must prepare ourselves. Whitaku? What are they? queried Rose. They're mythical monsters that appear when Lelora is threatened, Rez said. That costume I was wearing is meant to represent them. Brother Hugan was speaking again. Our ancestors knew how to keep Lelora happy. We have forgotten too many of the old ways, he announced. There is only one way to placate Laylora's wrath. We must make her an offering. An offering? What was he going to do? Hand round a collection plate? In the silence that followed, Rose began to get a nasty feeling that the old man had something a bit more drastic in mind. Laylora demands a blood sacrifice! Rose swallowed hard. Blood sacrifice. She didn't like the sound of that. She looked around and realised, with a shiver of dread, that all the Laylorans were staring at her. Brother Hugan wanted to offer his precious living planet a sacrifice, and he appeared to have chosen her for the honour. The problem with being in a very small crew, Hespel decided, was that there weren't enough junior ranks to assign all the really tedious jobs to. Now they had a prisoner, and someone had to guard him. 
Hespel thought he had definitely drawn the short straw. Not much of a sale, is it? He nearly fell off his chair. The prisoner was awake. I'm sorry, he muttered, utterly wrong-footed. Ah, oh, nothing to apologise for. I've seen worse. In fact, by most standards, this is pretty cosy. Just not very cell-like, that's all. The prisoner was sitting up now, looking around the cabin with curious eyes. It's not actually a cell, you see, Hespel started to explain. It's my cabin. I'm being held prisoner in someone's bedroom. We, uh, don't really have anywhere else. Fair enough. I'm the doctor, by the way. And with that, he was on his feet, extending an arm for an old-fashioned handshake. Hespel actually found himself about to return the gesture when he remembered the nature of their relationship and brought his weapon up to bear on the stranger. Trainee pilot Hespel, he offered a little lamely. Pleased to meet you, I'm sure, said the doctor. There's really no need for that, you know, he added, gently pushing the barrel of the weapon away from him. I'm not dangerous. I guess you don't look much like the monsters, but I didn't know that when I shot you. Hespel allowed himself to look a little embarrassed. Sorry about that. The doctor smiled. Not to worry. No permanent damage done. So what was that about monsters then? Rose looked around at the locals, who had her surrounded on all sides. They seemed to be lapping up everything the old man was saying. Were they really thinking of sacrificing her? Before the shaman could make any further move towards that end, Rez stepped out of the crowd. Wait, he called out. Just hold on a minute. Is this how Laylora wants us to treat our visitors? With suspicion and hatred and a violent death? As Rez spoke, he moved subtly to take up a position between Rose and the shaman. When I came here, as a baby, you welcomed me and took me into your homes. Why is this arrival any different? There was an awkward silence, and for a moment Rose wasn't sure which way things were going to go. But then the moment broke, and the mood of the crowd changed. Brother Hugan could sense it too. I didn't mean that we should sacrifice the girl, he explained, hurriedly backtracking. But we must appease Leilora in some way. Whatever you think we need to do, whatever ritual must be performed, I'll help, Rez told him. But killing Rose isn't going to do anything for anyone. Rez is right, Mother Jaylet's voice rang out. Brother Hugan did not mean to frighten Rose, did you? The shaman shook his head. Uh, of course not. He looked Rose in the eye and added, I'm sorry. Despite everything, Rose felt some sympathy for the old man. A moment ago, he had seemed so important and vital to the village, and now he looked like a joke. I will perform the ritual of understanding, Brother Hugan announced, with as much dignity as he could muster, and disappeared into his tent. The crowd broke up, drifting off in various directions. Rez led Rose to a small tent that was situated a little way to the side of the larger tent belonging to Mother Jaylet. She wondered what it must have been like to be brought up knowing that you were different from everyone else.
Was he teased when he was younger for not having the pointy ears or for having the extra finger? It must have been hard for him. Do you know much about your... Rose hesitated, unsure what the right word was. Uh, about who you are and, and where you come from, she continued finally, changing direction. My real parents, he replied. That's what you were going to say, wasn't it? Blushing, Rose nodded. I know a little. There were some things packed into the escape pod I landed in, some keepsakes. A weird cube thing, he trailed off. I'm sorry, murmured Rose. The doctor looked up as the cabin door opened. It was a woman. I'm Professor Petra Shulu. I'm in command of this mission, she announced. I'm sorry that you've been inconvenienced like this. The doctor smiled disarmingly. Oh, it's no trouble, he began. I'm the doctor. My friend Rose and I picked up your mayday signal and we're here, wherever we are, to help. The professor frowned. You've no idea where you are? The planet? No. This ship? Well, uh, going on the design and what I saw of it from the outside, I'd have to say it's not exactly showroom new, is it? What's the date? Uh, sometime in the late 24th century? Your ship doesn't have any serious armaments. Looks to me to be some kind of deep space explorer. So, who lives in a spaceship like this? <laughs> Private explorer? Mineral speculator, perhaps? Uh, am I getting warm? I am looking for something, the professor confessed. The doctor's interest was piqued. And what would that be, then? A planet called Laylora. The doctor repeated the name. Laylora, Laylora, Laylora! You've heard of it? The doctor nodded his head. A planet reputed to be perfect in every way. The paradise planet, but it doesn't exist, does it? It's just a myth. It's no myth, Doctor, said the professor with pride. This is Laylora. Jay Collins was stuck. He'd been dispatched to oversee the environmental systems, the control matrix for which had been damaged in the crash. He found the various controls a mess of burnt-out circuit boards and broken connections. With a heavy heart, he'd begun to take various parts of the system offline when a power outage had locked the doors to the room. He tried to call for help via the intercom, but it too had ceased to function. Colin's nose wrinkled. Something was burning. That's all he needed. He looked up at the ceiling, at the nozzles from which nothing was shooting. The fire sprinklers must be offline too. Great. Professor Shulu had taken the doctor to her quarters to explain about her quest. She told him about how she had amassed a large collection of clues and evidence relating to Leilora and its location, the most valuable of which was the book he was now examining. It was an old-fashioned diary, the personal record of someone called Maurit Gwillen. Gwillen was an explorer. His ship was the infamous SS Armstrong, she said, as if expecting him to recognise the name. The doctor shrugged. Is that meant to mean something? It was in the news for months, she said. I travel a lot, confessed the doctor. 
I don't always get to catch up with current affairs. Hardly current, the professor replied. It was nearly fifty years ago. She explained that the SS Armstrong was notorious because of the mysterious circumstances in which it had been recovered. The ship had been found drifting, out of control and out of power. An unknown disaster had befallen it, and it had lost life support along with power. Whatever the reason, the entire crew had been killed. Any ideas what exactly happened to it? asked the doctor. Thousands, the professor replied. Each one more unlikely than the last. All we know for certain is that when an Imperial cruiser recovered it, the salvage team found they weren't the first to have gone on board since the accident. Space pirates had stripped the ship of everything of value. But there were traces of trisilicate in the hold. Scans revealed that the ship had been carrying an enormous stock of the stuff. Trisilicate, mused the doctor. A rare and valuable energy source. The fuel my ship needs, agreed the professor. So, Gwillan's exploration had been successful. That's certainly what everyone thought. Although the ship had been stripped of most things, there were a few personal items left, including a handful of images printed out and stuck on the wall of Gwillan's cabin. There were various views of the same planet and had been labelled in his own hand. Two words described each image. Lelora and Paradise. Hence, the legend of the Paradise Planet. The professor nodded. For a while, it was all the rage. Everyone and his electronic dog were looking for the legendary Paradise Planet. But when no one found it, the interest faded and everyone forgot the name Lelora. Except for you, the doctor guessed. What kept you looking when everyone else had given up? I came across this journal. It's a personal diary, not a log of his journey, but Gwillan has described the places he visited along the way. With a lot of hard work, I've been able to plot his route. And that's what brought me here. Is it me, or is it hot in here? asked the doctor suddenly, feeling around the cabin wall with the palm of his hand. Now you come to mention it, it does feel a bit hotter than usual. The doctor sniffed the air. It is getting warmer. Where are your environment controls? A worried expression appeared on his face. I think you may have a problem. It was now fully dark outside the tent. Rose bombarded Rez with questions about his life on Laylora, and the teenager, excited to have another human being to talk to, was happy to tell her everything she wanted to know. The tribe lived in harmony with nature, Rez told her. It's balanced. Everything plays its part. If something bad happens, something good will happen to keep the balance. At least, that's how it used to be. What's changed? asked Rose. Rez shrugged. I'm not sure. No one is. But recently there have been more bad things than good. Some of the harvests failed last year. There have been earthquakes, storms, strange weather. And then there are the Whittaku. Rose remembered the name. The creatures the planet calls on to protect itself. The Whittaku are meant to appear in times of great danger, explained Rez. That's why Brother Hugan is so worried about the crop failures and the weird weather. 
He fears the Whittacool will walk again. Maybe they already are. Maybe that's what's happened to... Rez suddenly stopped. What? demanded Rose. Rez took a deep breath. Yesterday, three people disappeared. Brother Arak, Brother Purin and Sister Sorrenta. They were digging a new animal trap and they never came home. We searched and searched, but there's been no sign of them. They've just vanished. He stopped and looked away. People are saying the Whittaku took them. I'm sorry, said Rose. They're just kids, my age. And they've just gone, Rose, completely gone. The doctor hurried along the spaceship corridor, leaving Professor Shulu trailing in his wake. Next door on the right, she called after him. She couldn't quite work out how it was that a man who had been their prisoner a few minutes ago was now acting as if he owned the place. Together, the doctor and Professor Shulu forced the door open. Clouds of noxious smoke poured out into the corridor. The doctor clasped a handkerchief over his nose and mouth and pushed his way into the room. The professor followed him as best she could. Something must have shorted, she hazarded, seeing the environmental control panels ablaze. She looked around for the fire extinguisher, but the cradle was empty. The reason soon became clear as the doctor unleashed a jet of fire-killing chemical foam, which quickly did its job. As the fire spluttered and died and the smoke cleared, they both became aware of a third figure in the room, lying prone on the floor to one side of the console that had caught a light. The doctor gave the body a quick examination, but he quickly realised that nothing could be done for the poor man. I'm sorry, he said finally. No need to apologise. You put the fire out, didn't you? The doctor's eyes narrowed. I was talking about your crew member. He's dead. According to his uniform tag, his name is Collins. The professor looked over in the direction of the body. She nodded. Jay Collins. Still, he didn't have any vital duties. His loss shouldn't affect our mission. Vital duties? The doctor was almost beside himself with fury. A man has just lost his life. The professor still looked unconcerned. He knew the risks. Deep space travel is always dangerous. And with that, she turned back to examining the damage to the controls. They seemed to have been talking for hours. When Rose poked her head outside the tent, she saw that most of the other fires had already been extinguished. The rest of the tribe must have gone to sleep ages ago. Rez was at the fire, mixing up a hot drink in a pot. What happens now? asked Rose a little shyly. Now? Now we have a nice cup of ginera, replied Rez with a broad smile. Ginera turned out to be a coffee-style drink, but with a hint of chocolate to it. It was, Rose had to admit, rather tasty. Do you think there really was some kind of creature like that suit you were wearing? she asked. Rez looked her straight in the eyes. Yes, I do. I've seen too much at the temple and around it. Murals, paintings, statues. I'm sure the Whitaker were real once. Seeing Rose's face, Rez hurriedly reassured her. But that was all a long time ago. I don't think we're going to be seeing a Whitaker any time soon, he promised her. 
And at that precise moment, a fist of razor-sharp talons ripped through the wall of the tent, missing Rose by centimetres. She dived forward. Behind her, the savage talons sliced again and again through the fabric of the tent. Where, a moment ago, there had been a solid wall of leather, there was now a mass of thin shreds. Stepping through this new entrance was a creature that Rose recognised instantly. As a Whittaku. The costume that Rez had been wearing earlier didn't do justice to the real thing. For a start, it was huge. It had a distinct smell, a strong animal odour of sweat and zoos. Rose realised with a shudder of fear that there were actually four sets of talons as the terrifying creature had two extra arms. The head, thrown back as it roared angrily, was an ugly mass of hair and fangs with wild red eyes that showed no sign of intelligence. She looked around for something, anything she could use as a weapon. Her eyes alighted on the steaming hot cup of Ginnera. She grabbed the cup and threw the contents in the direction of the creature's face. To her surprise, it squealed and retreated clearly in pain. Rose was amazed. Surely the Ginnera hadn't been that hot. But whatever the reason for its success, her makeshift weapon was certainly having a devastating effect. The creature fell to its knees and clutched at its face. Rose, quick! It was Rez at the tent flap, beckoning to her. Rose ducked around the creature and joined him. The village was in pandemonium. People were screaming and panicking, running in all directions. It was impossible to see how many of the creatures were attacking them. At the edge of the village, they found Brother Hugan shouting and gesticulating. We need to get to the temple, he was calling. Rose looked back as one of the creatures appeared with an unconscious villager on his shoulder. They're taking people, she cried. If you don't come now, you'll be next, Rez insisted, and Rose allowed him to lead her away. Behind them, she thought she could hear sounds of pursuit, but after a while, these faded, and she was pretty sure they were no longer being followed. Suddenly, Rez pulled her to the ground, rolling her into the cover of a large bush. Oi, she began, but he covered her mouth with his palm and hissed a shh into her ear. Something was moving nearby. Rose squeezed her eyes shut. Just go past, she thought, just go past. Suddenly, the bush she was hiding under was pulled aside and something reached down towards her. It was Mother Jaylet. You nearly scared me half to death, she whispered angrily. But the Leiloran woman didn't seem particularly concerned about that. Quick, come with me, she whispered back. Did everyone get away? Rez asked. Those that escaped are fine, but there are still some people unaccounted for. And what about the creatures? asked Rose. Mother Jaylet turned to her and put a finger to her lips. That's what I want to show you, she whispered. Look. She pulled back a curtain of vines, and Rose and Rez were able to see them shuffling away in the distance. Where are they going? Rose asked. But even as she spoke, she had an idea of the answer. That's the direction of the crashed spaceship, isn't it? Rez nodded. I think so. Did you notice something odd about the Whittaku? Jellet said. Odd, retorted Rose. They're two metre high hairy monsters with claws the size of skewers. How odd do they have to be? How many Whittaku attacked the village tonight? Asked Jellet, ignoring her sarcasm. 
There were three, Rez answered. With a sudden rush of understanding, Rose caught on to what she was getting at. But just now, we saw a dozen of them or more heading for the spaceship. Mother Jaylet looked grim. Brother Hugan was right. The Whittacle army is growing. Another night like tonight and they will outnumber us. Rose thought she had the answer. If Brother Hugan knows so much about their things, maybe he knows a way to stop them. Jaylet shook her head sadly. You're right that he knows more about the Whittacle than any of us. But Brother Hugan is one of the missing. John Hespel had been amused when the doctor persuaded Professor Shulu that she had stumbled across quite an asset in capturing him. The environmental control system had been a piece of cake for the stranger to fix, and having sorted that out, he'd volunteered his services for any other little job she might have. The doctor was currently using some kind of tool to seal a loose connection. The device buzzed and glowed with a strange blue light. There, that should do it, he announced triumphantly. That should start recharging now. He looked around, puzzled. If the tricilica engines are offline, where's your power coming from? Emergency generator, Hespel said as if it was obvious. The doctor's eyes narrowed almost imperceptibly. Show me. The young crewman led the stranger to the cargo bay. At the rear of the room was an ugly-looking metal machine which was giving off a terrible stench. Despite the foul smell, the doctor approached the machine to look at it more closely. Is this really what I think it is? It's a microfusion generator. The doctor looked seriously unhappy. Technology that is banned on most civilised planets. What on earth is this monstrosity doing here? Hespel looked a little embarrassed. It was the smallest but most effective backup power source, apparently. Smallest and dirtiest, the doctor retorted. Where are the coolant filters? There, uh, aren't any. So where are you venting the... The doctor broke off as he spotted the answer to his own question. From the rear of the machine, a pair of clear hoses were carrying dirty yellow liquid away. The hoses led to a hatch in the wall of the room. The doctor ran over to examine it. Tell me this leads to some kind of safe waste disposal system, he demanded. Hespel shook his head. It just goes outside, he said. The doctor got to his feet and moved swiftly to the door. I need to speak to Professor Shulu, he announced, and disappeared before Hespel could stop him. The professor and Kendall were in the lab when the door burst open and the doctor spilled into the room like a force of nature. You have to shut down that generator. I'm sorry? You're pouring toxic waste onto this planet's surface in violation of every rule in the book. You have to shut it down. We're a long way from the Empire's courts, Doctor. This far from home, we have to make our own rules. I thought you were looking for paradise. Do you want to destroy it before you've had a chance to look around? Professor Shulu just shook her head. Don't be so melodramatic, Doctor. It's a big planet. Even if we run the generator for a week, it's only a drop in the ocean. The Doctor looked aghast. How dare you? Your visitors here. Can't you treat the planet with some respect?
The professor crossed her arms and leaned back on her console, preparing herself for a long argument. But she never got her chance as Haspel came running into the room. Kendall sighed. Doesn't anyone knock any more? Sorry, sir, gasped Hespel. But, but they're back, the creatures, and this time there are more of them. The crew were having some success in holding back the creatures, but despite the superiority of their firepower, they were clearly outnumbered. Kendall, leading from the front, was the furthest away from the spaceship, while Hespel and Baker had found positions at either side of the airlock. Professor Shulu was looking out from the edge of the doorway. It's too dark out there, she complained. The doctor's eyes had already adjusted to the lack of light. This isn't a random attack. They want something. Yes, us. The doctor shook his head. Something else. There was a noise from above, a metallic clanging. They're on the hull, he exclaimed. Two of the creatures dropped down from above, directly in front of them. The professor raised her weapon, but the doctor pulled her back before she could use it. He pinned both her arms to her side. Let them in. Find out what they want. The woman struggled in his grip. Let go of me, you idiot. They'll kill us. No. no I don't think so, the doctor insisted. And, as if to prove him right, the two giants moved straight past the pair of them and disappeared into the ship. The professor set off after the invaders. The doctor followed as they headed for the cargo bay. They're in there, she told him. I thought they might be, he said. I think you've just been invaded by radical environmentalists. Awful crashing sounds of destruction could be heard from within. They're smashing the generator. I told you, the doctor reminded her. It was polluting the planet. Suddenly the lights in the corridor went out. The power was off again. The two creatures came lumbering out. Behind them the generator had been completely taken apart. The creatures ignored the doctor and the professor and headed back towards the airlock. They followed the monsters at a discreet distance. Outside they found the gunfire had died down. Hespel was peering out into the darkness. They just suddenly went he told the professor. The doctor nodded. They found what they came for. Did they suffer any casualties? Just the one, answered Kendall. Stunned, not dead. We'd better bring him inside, suggested the doctor. Kendall and Hespel went off into the darkness and reappeared a moment or two later with the heavy bulk of the unconscious monster between them. Even in this condition, it was still terrifying. After all the excitement, Rose found it easier to sleep than she would have expected. As soon as she put her head down, she was asleep. It seemed like only moments later that she was stretching and opening her eyes again. But she felt so refreshed it was as if she had been asleep for hours. She was in a makeshift dormitory in one of the smaller buildings near the main temple. A couple of dozen Leylorans lay sleeping around her. Taking care not to make too much noise, she got to her feet and made her way to the door. She looked for Rez among the sleepers, but, when she failed to find him, she decided to take the opportunity to explore the site alone. Rose found herself heading back towards the main temple. She went inside. Around the walls were a number of massive statues, many of a woman, presumably the human form of the planet herself. 
Other statues were of more familiar creatures, the Whitiku, as she now knew them. In an alcove to one side, she found some steps leading down to a lower level. Grabbing a flaming torch from a wall bracket, Rose began the descent. The doctor looked up as he heard the doors open and was pleased to see that it was the young trainee pilot, Hespel. Both the professor and Kendall were hopelessly fixed in their worldviews, but Hespel showed signs of having some imagination, and he approved of that. He nodded a greeting at Hespel and returned to examining the unconscious creature. Is there any possibility of getting these off? he asked, gesturing at the heavy metal chains that were wrapped around the creature, which lay sprawled on its back in the middle of the floor. I'm sorry, Doctor, but the Professor says this thing has to be restrained. I don't think it's dangerous, explained the Doctor. I really don't. They only wanted to stop you from poisoning the planet. There's more to them than meets the eye, I'm sure of that. Hespel came closer, intrigued. What do you mean? he asked. Well, they attacked as a group. There wasn't much sign of individuality, was there? The doctor looked to Hespel for confirmation. I, uh, I suppose so, he replied. So, that would suggest some kind of an animal that wasn't highly developed. Hespel nodded. And yet, said the doctor, they knew exactly what they needed to do, which demonstrates a certain degree of intelligence. Hespel began to see what the doctor was driving at. You mean they displayed characteristics of simple animals and more complex life forms at the same time, he said. Good lad, you're using your brain. The doctor then reached over to pick at something on the monster's chest. So, now you've warmed up your noggin, what do you make of this? Hespel studied what the doctor was holding. It was a necklace, decorated with colourful stones. The centrepiece was one enormous fist-sized yellow crystal. He gasped. Is that tricilicate? Looks like it, doesn't it? The doctor agreed. Wow! Which raises some rather interesting questions. For a start, when was the last time you saw a great big hairy monster like this wearing bling quite like that? The atmosphere in the temple crypt was chilly and Rose shivered. She had discovered that it was far more than a simple room. There was an absolute warren of interconnected cellars and tunnels down here that seemed to go on for kilometres. There were stores of grain and gin and beans and other materials too. Rose looked into one room and gasped in surprise. It was filled with a huge pile of jewels, like yellow diamonds. She picked one up to examine it more closely. Pretty, aren't they? Rose nearly jumped out of her skin. Sister Kaylin! She dropped the jewel she'd just picked up. I, I wasn't going to take it. Kaylin just shrugged. Take as many as you like. They're everywhere. Rose couldn't quite believe her ears. You don't value these things. The Lauren looked bemused. Value? What do you mean? They're ever so common. In the fields we find them all the time. It's a pain. Were you looking for me? Rose asked. Kaelin nodded. I'm doing a head count. Suddenly, the seriousness of what happened last night came flooding back to Rose. She let Kaelin lead her back towards the staircase going up to the surface, 
all thoughts of the crystals forgotten. Are there many people missing? she asked. Kayla nodded, a grim expression on her face. Eight, we think. Any sign of Brother Hugan? Kaylin shook her head sadly. No. Back on the surface, Rose and Kaylin found most of the adults gathered in an informal crisis meeting. The one thing they all agreed on was that what had happened was connected in some way with the crashed skyboat. Rose cleared her throat and tried to interrupt the debate, which was beginning to get a little heated. Excuse me, she began, but her voice was drowned out. She tried again. Oi! she cried much louder, and this time she got their attention. The people in that ship are human, like me. Perhaps I can talk to them, find out what they know. They may be able to help find your missing people. Mother Jaylette looked at her with interest. Is that likely? Rose nodded. They'll have technology, tools that might help. And the doctor's there, she thought to herself. He's worth a whole pile of tech all by himself. To her relief, she saw that Mother Jaylette was nodding. Rez stepped forward. I'll take you, he said simply. Thanks. Rose smiled at him. As Mother Jaylette gave him a big hug and told him to take care, Rose felt a twinge of guilt. She was taking Rez away from his family, and she had an ominous feeling that he might never come back to them. Rose was getting a bit blasé about spaceships these days, but she'd never seen one quite like this. She could tell instantly that this was not a new ship. Panels looked to have been replaced by spares from entirely different ships, or possibly bits salvaged from junkyards. Do you think it's safe just to walk up to it? Rez asked. Rose wasn't sure. Let's just walk slowly. Keep our hands where they can see them and hope they don't fancy any target practice. A little nervously, they began to walk towards the spaceship. As they got closer, Rose could see that the main airlock doors were open and there were a couple of people standing just inside. We come in peace, she called out hopefully, adding, Don't shoot! Rose Tyler, where the heck have you been? called a familiar voice. Doctor! She ran towards him and they collided in a giant bear hug. Finally, the doctor let her go and they just grinned at each other for a moment. How about introducing the new boyfriend? suggested the doctor. This is Rez, Rose said, ignoring the doctor's teasing. He's a human living with the locals. So, are you going to introduce us to your new friend? she asked and nodded over the doctor's shoulder in the direction of a severe-looking woman in her fifties who was walking purposefully towards them. Let me introduce the commander of this fine ship, Professor Petra Shulu, said the doctor. Professor, this is my travelling companion, Rose Tyler, and this is... Uh, a new friend, Rez. The professor nodded at the newcomers, but her expression remained serious. So what can you tell us about the creatures that attacked us last night? Creatures? A big airy chap with four arms and serious talons, the doctor said. Snap, said Rose. You were attacked too, asked the professor. Our village was raided last night, explained Rez. But it was okay, Rose hurried to tell the doctor. I saw them off with a hot drink. 
I'm sorry. I threw my drink at them and it seemed to stop them. Like Superman and Kryptonite. You found a weakness? The doctor was impressed. Can you show me? Of course, replied Rez. Luckily, it didn't take Rez long to find a ginnon bush, heavy with fruit, not too far from the spaceship. He showed the doctor the leaves they used to brew their hot drink, the peach-like fruit which they ate, and the seeds of the fruit which, when dried, were used to make a sleeping potion. What an incredibly useful plant, commented the doctor, impressed. Laylora provides, replied Rez automatically. Does she really? That's very convenient. The doctor gathered a handful of the leaves and fruit, then stood up. Let's find out what makes this stuff tick, shall we? End of Disc 1 Disc 2 A short time later, work was underway in the spaceship's laboratory. At least it was for the Doctor. Rose had been relegated to the position of observer. The Doctor was slicing up bits of the ginnon plant and its fruit, subjecting them to various pieces of testing equipment. Anything I can do? Tia asked for the umpteenth time, hoping that she could at least pass him things, like a good assistant, but apparently even that was asking too much. Not really, the doctor said, carefully adding a lumpy mass of pulverised gin and seed to a beaker of hot water. Why don't you take a wander around the ship? I think your friend's being shown around. Rose could see that there was little advantage in hanging around here counting test tubes, the doctor was in his element, playing the mad scientist, but that really wasn't Rose's thing. She was more of a people person. She decided to take his advice and have a look around. Anya Baker joined the doctor in the laboratory. How does this work? she said, watching him fill a plastic container with a gin and solution. Are you a scientist? The young woman shook her head. Not really. Navigation is my field, but I'm curious. The doctor smiled. Nothing wrong with curiosity. So what does this stuff do? Well, if it works, it should stop the creatures in their tracks. But will it kill them? The doctor looked away. You don't know the answer, do you? He turned back to her and met her gaze. Not entirely, no, but I'm hoping it won't be fatal. There's only one way to find out, though. We need to test it. Baker realised what the doctor was suggesting. You want to try it on the creature we caught? Of course not. That would be cruel and dangerous. No, we need to take a cell sample from the creature and use the liquid on that. The doctor looked around and started picking up bits of equipment. What are you doing? Well, I don't think we're going to get the patient in here, do you? So we'd better take what we need to the cargo bay and do our little experiment there. Rose found Rez with Hespel in the cargo bay, absorbed in a computer game. 
Neither acknowledged her presence. It was obvious that she wouldn't get any sense out of them until the game was over, so she wandered over to take a closer look at their prisoner. Something sparkling on its chest caught her eye. It was a necklace, and she was fairly sure that she'd seen one just like it before, although she couldn't pinpoint exactly where. While she was trying to remember, she noticed that the creature's chest was rising and falling in a new rhythm. But before she could react, its whole body suddenly buckled, knocking her off balance and causing her to fall face first into its hairy chest. With a roar of fury, it pulled at the chains with each of its forearms. For Rose, it was like being on a bucking bronco as the creature used all its strength to yank at the bonds. To her horror, the chains were not up to the strain. They twisted and then snapped simultaneously. The creature sent her flying as it stumbled to its feet. Rose found herself colliding with Hespel, who was reaching for his weapon. The two of them fell in a heap on the floor. Rez backed against the nearest wall as the creature moved towards him. Suddenly the doors opened and the doctor was there. Behind him, the female crew member, Baker, was carrying a large plastic container full of some brown liquid. Baker tossed the container of liquid to the doctor. Try this! Doctor! Rose urged him. Sorry, fella, he muttered as he tore the cap off the container and threw the contents at the creature. It screamed as the liquid hit, then fell to the floor. Look! cried Baker. As they watched, amazed, the creature began to change right in front of them. Its hair retracted and its whole body shrank. It became man-sized. With a sudden burst of inspiration, Rose realised what was happening. The Whittaku! They're the missing people! Even as she said it, the transformation was complete. A dazed Brother Hugon was lying on the floor. Anya Baker was open-mouthed at what she had seen. How is that possible? she asked. How can something change its form like that? Rose glanced at the doctor and smiled to herself. Oh, you'd be surprised, she muttered. So, now we know where all these monsters are coming from, said the doctor. We need to get a whole lot of this generous stuff made up. Rez cleared his throat. <clears throat> I might be able to help you there, he told them. We use Jinnan for so many things, we've got huge stockpiles of it in the village. On the bridge of the Humphrey Bogart, Kendall was checking the progress of the ship's auto-repair systems. Everything seemed to be coming along nicely. The doors at the rear of the bridge opened and Professor Shulu appeared. Another twelve hours and we should be able to take off. But without some trisilicate we won't get very far, he told her. Then we'd better confirm now one way or another whether this is Gwilan's paradise. If it is Leilora, trisilicate shouldn't be a problem, she reminded him. She then said that she was intending to visit the village with the doctor, Rose and the human boy, Rez. Kendall, as conscious of security as ever, didn't think this was a good idea. It might be dangerous. I think I should come with you. The professor shook her head. There's no need. The doctor's made up some more gin and solution, enough to deal with those creatures if we should run into any. OK, but be careful, he insisted. Sadly, he watched her leave the bridge. What had happened to the bright-eyed young woman he remembered so vividly on her graduation day? He shook his head slowly. It was no good thinking about the past. 
That Petrushulu was long gone, and in his heart he knew why. Trying to put his concerns about the professor out of his mind, he turned back to the job in hand. He just hoped she would find what she was really looking for, whatever that was. Rez had been left to keep an eye on the recovering shaman. The old Leiloran was sleeping more peacefully now, and some colour had returned to his cheeks. Rez hoped he was going to be all right. The tribe needed him more than ever in the present crisis, even if his ideas were a little old-fashioned. Suddenly, Brother Hugan coughed and opened his eyes. Rez turned to give him his full attention. How are you? he asked anxiously. The old man's eyes flickered around the room, panicky. It's all right, Rez assured him. You're safe now. The old man's lips were moving, but no sound was coming out. Rez leaned closer to the old man's mouth. Water, he croaked. Rez looked around. There was no sign of a jug of any kind, but he remembered seeing Rose get water from one of the machines. He crossed the room. And then, without warning, something exploded on the back of his head and he fell to the ground. A short time later, Rez staggered down the corridor, clutching the back of his head. What happened to you? asked Rose, worried. Brother Hugan, he replied simply. The doctor was concerned. He hit you? Rez nodded and then instantly winced, the sudden movement doing nothing for the state of his head, which was throbbing with pain. Hit me and then ran off. Right, said the doctor. We'd better go after him before he does anything stupid. In the forest, Brother Hugan was running like the wind, driven by the voice in his head. Laylora was calling to him. She needed him to act. The humans were killing her with their very presence. Only Brother Hugan could help her. That's why she had chosen him to take the form of the Whitiku, and why he had been chosen again to do her bidding. Ignoring the branches and ferns that whipped his body as he ran recklessly through the trees, Brother Hugan felt an enormous joy. He knew what he had to do. He had to rouse his people and lead them in battle against the enemy. The aliens and their stinking, dirty technology must be removed from the planet by force. Laylora must be cleansed. Oblivious to anything else, Brother Hugan ran on, a man possessed. The doctor's party followed the shaman's trail and soon found themselves approaching the Leloran village. Mother Jaylette and Kalen were the first to greet them, welcoming Rez home with big hugs. Rez began to tell them about Brother Hugan, but they stopped him. We already know, Kalen told him. He's in his tent. He came back a little while ago. The doctor asked to be taken to see him, explaining that he needed urgent medical attention. Kalen and Rez accompanied him, while Rose showed Professor Shulu the village. Fascinating jewellery, observed the professor after they'd been walking around the village for a short while. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? said Rose, glad to hear something approaching enthusiasm in the woman's voice for once. Can those really be trisilicate crystals? I don't know. Here, have a look at one. Rose fished the crystal she'd picked up at the temple out of her jeans pocket and tossed it at the professor, who produced a pocket magnifying glass and started to examine it. This is incredible. It's perfect. Yeah, said Rose, affecting a casual attitude. 
Apparently they're a real problem for the natives, mucking up their fields and all that. They're abundant? asked the professor. You can say that again, Rose grinned. They've got a pile in one room, under that ruined temple place. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Alarmingly, the professor took her arm like they were old friends or something. Can you show me? she asked. Inside the shaman's brightly decorated tent, the doctor and Rez were with Brother Hugan. He was rolling back and forth, sweating and shivering in equal measure, and all the time he was muttering about Laylora. Laylora demands, Laylora needs cleansing. The words kept tumbling out, hardly audible. The tent flap was pushed open and Caelan appeared with a steaming cup of ginnera. She bent down by the side of the shaman. Here, help me get him into a sitting position, she said. Rez hurried across and a moment later the doctor was able to raise the cup of ginnera to the old man's lips. He drank and almost choked in his enthusiasm. Steady on, old fella, there's no rush, muttered the doctor. But a moment later the man lurched violently backwards and then forward again, spitting out the liquid. The doctor and Rez both jumped backwards instinctively, giving the shaman the opportunity to leap up and push them both back on their heels. Brother Hugan then rushed towards the tent flap. Caelan made a half-hearted attempt to stop him, but he just tossed her to one side, back into the path of the doctor and Rez. In a moment he was out of the tent and away. By the time the doctor, Rez and Caelan had disentangled themselves, the shaman was long gone. They rushed out of the tent and tried to see which way had gone, but there was no sign of him. They were still frantically looking a moment or two later when Rose and the professor joined them. Rose began to tell the doctor about wanting to take the professor to the temple. The doctor suddenly clicked his fingers. The temple! Of course! That's where I'll be heading! Rose and I can go and look for him, the professor said quickly, to everyone's surprise. You need to get the gin and back to the ship to make up a batch of Whittakoo cure, don't you? While you do that, we can find the shaman. Eventually, the doctor, Rez and Kalen arrived back at the spaceship, each of them carrying bags of the heavy gin and seed. Shame you lot haven't invented the wheelbarrow, muttered the doctor as they came in sight of the crashed ship. Hespel and Baker came out to give them a hand. While they started taking the gin to the lab, the doctor sought out Kendall. As expected, the ex-marine was on the bridge, alone. Did you get what you went for? he asked, as the doctor joined him. I think so. Do you really think spraying the creatures with this stuff will turn them back to their native form? The doctor pulled a face. That's the theory. He leaned over Kendall's console and scanned the information on the screen. Talking of theories, what's the deal with Professor Shulu and you then? Kendall's face hardened. What are you suggesting? I was just wondering, that's all. How the pair of you hooked up. That's all. Nothing else. She's my niece. You're her uncle, the doctor said. That's how it usually works. She's my late sister's daughter. An uncle, the uncle, repeated the doctor, running the new information through his head like a computer accepting new data. Uncle Kendall the Marine. Ryan, you said your sister was dead. 
Kendall bowed his head. Petra was just ten when it happened. My sister and my brother-in-law were members of Gwilan's crew. She saw them leave on board the Armstrong and they came back in coffins. The doctor nodded. It was all beginning to make sense now. It was just one of those terrible things. I was away, fighting in the war. I came back and took Petra in. You must be proud of her. She seems to have turned out really well, all things considered, the doctor said after a pause. Kendall raised his head and looked the doctor squarely in the eyes. Do you really think so? She used to be a jolly little girl. Always laughing. He got up and made himself busy at another console. Even though Kendall's back was turned, the doctor could tell he was tearful at the memory. I don't think I've seen her laugh since her parents died. Grief can be a terrible thing, the doctor suggested sympathetically. Kendall spun round to face the doctor. But it has to end sometime. You have to move on. And she hasn't. Kendall sat back against the console. I just don't know. She doesn't ever talk about it. She's so driven. First it was to complete her schooling. Then it was to get every higher academic qualification she could. And finally she began researching space law. All the myths and legends of the last frontier. All of which eventually brought her here. To paradise. Kendall nodded. But do you think it will make her happy? He then shook his head sadly before answering his own question. I myself rather doubt it. The doctor decided it was only fair to leave the man alone with his private thoughts. But as he went to see how the others were getting on, he had a lot of new information to mull over. In the lab, Hespel and Baker were already engaged in the business of producing a sufficient quantity of the ginnon mixture. Rez was watching, fascinated, but Kalen was wandering around the lab looking very uncomfortable, like a trapped animal. How you doing? asked the doctor as he strode in. Not long now, Hespel reported. A large tank had been filled with brown liquid, which was bubbling away furiously. It resembled alchemy more than science, but the doctor smiled his approval regardless. He then turned his attention to Kalen, who was still looking at everything with a mixture of fear and apprehension. All a bit much for you? he asked. Kalen nodded, grateful for his understanding. I think I'll get back to the village, she suggested nervously. The doctor frowned. It's getting dark out there. Kalen gave him a shy shrug. I know my way through the forest. I know where the traps are. Traps? queried the doctor. What traps? Rose was finding it increasingly difficult to see where she was treading. The canopy of leaves, coupled with the setting sun, meant that it was getting very dark at ground level and she kept tripping over raised roots. Then disaster struck. One moment the professor had been walking along in front of her and the next she was gone. The ground seemed to collapse under her feet. Rose realised that what had appeared to be a solid carpet of leaves and undergrowth was, in fact, just a thin covering that concealed a deep pit. Rose crept closer to the edge and peered into the darkness. 
Are you all right? She called down. Just the odd bruise. The professor's voice floated up from the blackness. No major damage. Now that her eyes were adjusting to the light, Rose could make out the figure of the professor sitting on the floor of the pit some four metres below. It was a long drop, but some of the matting that had concealed the pit had fallen with her and cushioned the impact. I'll try and find something to get you out, Rose said. The sun had all but disappeared now, making it hard to discern very much at all. Rose saw that several of the plants round about resembled vines. Perhaps she could make some kind of rope. Taking care not to fall into any traps herself, she began to collect suitable vines, winding them round her arm like a garden hose. She was about to head back in the direction of the pit, when, from somewhere nearby, a twig cracked, and she could hear rustling in the undergrowth. A Whitaku appeared, pushing through the trees. Had it seen her? Rose? Rose, are you there? The Whitaku stopped at the sound of the human voice and changed direction, moving towards the pit. It was roaring now, sensing prey. Moving quickly, Rose tied one end of her vine rope around a thick tree trunk. Not taking her eyes off the monster, she crouched down and tipped the untied end of the rope into the pit. Grab hold now, she instructed the professor, but don't start climbing yet. Watching the Whitaku getting ever closer, Rose knew what she had to do. The creatures were big and heavy, but that was also a weakness. They weren't exactly nimble. She'd have to time this to perfection, but they had no other choice. She could now smell the familiar odour of the creature's fur and could hear its ragged and angry breathing. It raised one of its upper arms, ready to slice down at her. Now, she thought, and dived towards the creature's legs, rolling under its arms. Getting to her feet as quickly as she could, she saw that the Whitaku had also turned around. Roaring angrily, it took another step towards her. She dropped her shoulder and charged at the creature's legs, shoulder barging it just below its knee with her full weight. Above her, the creature flailed its arms, its whole body knocked off balance. For a moment, it seemed to be frozen in mid-air. And then, finally, it fell backwards into the trap. Rose got to her feet quickly and ran to the edge of the pit, screaming, Professor! Climb now! Professor! A moment later, a hand popped up and Rose grabbed it. As the professor clambered out of the pit, she was breathing heavily and looked a little pale, but she was otherwise unharmed. They could hear that back down in the pit, the creature was getting to its feet and attempting to climb out after them. Come on, urged Rose, who was still holding the older woman's hand. They began to run in the direction of the ruins. Finally, they reached the more complete buildings, and the temple, which was their target, was in sight. Just another hundred metres or so. The Whitaku that had fallen into the pit burst out of the forest some distance behind them. It was going to be a foot race now. Rose led the way towards the entrance. Suddenly, she became aware of movement over to her left. A glance confirmed her worst fears. Three more of the creatures were moving to cut them off. Rose! called the professor with alarm. There are more of them! Rose was about to say that she had already seen them when she realised that the professor was looking in another direction entirely. Rose spun around, frantically looking for an escape route, but there wasn't one. They had nowhere left to run. The creatures had them surrounded. Kendall found the doctor in the professor's quarters. 
looking through her precious collection of Paradise Planet evidence. He knew he ought to be angry, but the expression on the stranger's face pulled him up short. It was identical to the one he'd seen on his niece's face a thousand times before. A look of puzzled concentration, as if at any moment a vital connection would be made. The doctor didn't look up from the journal he was reading. The answer is in all this somewhere, he said. What do we know about the planet? That it's meant to be a paradise, replied Kendall. But why do we think that? Kendall nodded at the direction of the journal. Because Gwillen came here and described it. The doctor nodded and flicked through a few more pages. He certainly did, in great detail. Reckoned himself a bit of a poet, did old Gwillen. He flipped further into the journal, scanning the pages at incredible speed until he reached the end. Hang on, what's this? he muttered, reading the final entry again. Kendall came closer to look over the doctor's shoulder. And now we must leave this heavenly paradise and take away with us our human and ancient imperfections. Faced with such beauty, we have no choice but to accept our uncleanliness and return to the harsh realities of our own filthy lives. I see what you mean about the poetry. It's a bit over the top, isn't it? Kendall said. To his surprise, however, the doctor didn't agree. Instead, he slammed shut the journal. Yes, he announced, eyes wide with delight. That's it. What is? demanded Kendall, confused. It's not a metaphor at all. He's being factual, not poetic. The planet's got a perfectly balanced ecosystem, right? So what happens if you add a new element to something that's perfectly balanced? You send it out of kilter. And what are we here? Alien. We're the new element. We're making the planet ill and the Whittaku are the planet's response. It's as if the planet itself is allergic to us. He stopped and looked serious. We have to sort this out fast before the entire planet suffers a fatal anaphylactic shock. And that is a metaphor, he added, for the end of the world. Rose grabbed the older woman's hand and gave it a squeeze. With her other hand, she felt the surface of the wall at their backs. It was rough and uneven. The individual stones were not all the same size and some jutted out slightly. There was a window set in the wall about three metres from the ground. Could she reach it? Quick, help me up, she hissed at the professor. The professor put her hands together and Rose placed her foot into them, then pushed off. She scrabbled for a handhold with her left hand and found one. Moving quickly but carefully, she found a secure place for her left foot and then her right. Not far to go now. She stretched up with her right arm and felt for the window ledge. Got it! With a huge and unladylike grunt, Rose hauled herself up and over the ledge, into the room on the other side. From there she was able to reach down to help the professor, who was already starting her own ascent. And with good reason. The nearest Whittaku was only a few metres away. Rose clasped the professor's arms and pulled with all her strength. The older woman was quite light, thankfully, and a moment or two later she was through the window. Rose led the way deeper into the building. This was the main temple that she had partly explored earlier. Up would take them to the side galleries and then onto the observation tower that the doctor had climbed. From there they would be able to see their attackers coming, but they would also be trapped. Down would lead to the crypt. 
Although the cellars and tunnels there were dark and dangerous, they had the advantage of being extensive. With luck, they would be able to lose their pursuers that way. Rose made up her mind and led the way down the spiral staircase. Kendall regarded his troops with a critical eye. Not the finest body of soldiers that he had ever commanded, but they would have to do. Hespel looked paler than ever, and Baker didn't look much better. The third member of his assault squad was the human-turned-native, Rez. He seemed calmer than the other two, even though they were at least eight years older than him. Perhaps it was the advantage of knowing the territory. The final member of the team was the Doctor, and Kendall just didn't know where to begin with this one. He didn't look like a fighter. Tall and thin, you could imagine him snapping in two like a twig in the hands of a Whittaku. Yet there was an inner strength to him that even Kendall found intimidating. The belts they each wore, from which numerous plastic bags hung, did not improve the impression of a makeshift army about to face the enemy with no weapons. Each bag was filled with the solution the Doctor had designed, and the sophisticated high-tech delivery system for this bio-weapon was to be the human arm. In short... They were going to lob the bags at the creatures like kids in a summer garden hurling water balloons at each other. Kendall sighed to himself. All right, let's move out. The doctor joined Rez at the head of their group. He was glad of his large coat, but the human boy seemed immune to the cold night. Hardened to the local conditions, the doctor supposed. Rez had obviously adapted to the planet's climate, but had the planet adapted to having him here? It appeared that the boy had been harbouring similar thoughts. You think the Whitaker have risen because the spaceship crashed here? He asked the doctor. I think the mass production of Whitaker is a response to the professor's ship, yes. But the first Whitaker appeared before the ship came down, continued Rez. Yes, nodded the doctor solemnly. So... They were a reaction to a different problem, like all the other things. The crop failures, the strange weather, the earth tremors. The doctor was fascinated. And these things are unusual, Philaylora? Very. The elders told me that nothing like this has happened before. But it's been getting worse year by year now, and no one understands why. But you think you do, don't you? He let the question hang in the air for a moment. How long has this been going on? he asked, fearing that he already knew what the reply would be. Fifteen years, Rez told him sadly. Since they found me. They walked on in silence. Finally, Kendall's unit reached the outlying ruins. It was very cold now, and their breath misted in front of their faces. The five of them stood together for a moment, regarding the mysterious scene before them. Now where? asked Kendall. The doctor shrugged. Not sure. Why don't we head for the main temple? I bet that's where we'll find the monsters, he suggested. To be honest, I was rather expecting to have been attacked by now. Rose stopped suddenly and the professor cannoned into her. Whittaker, whispered Rose, turning around on the spot. 
We need to go back the way we came. The professor turned and took the lead, but she'd only gone a short distance when she too came to an abrupt stop. Something was moving in the darkness. There's something in front of us too, she whispered to Rose. Now what? Rose looked around quickly. There was a chamber entrance a metre or so away, but if they sheltered in there, they would be trapped. A roar from behind made the decision for her, and she pulled the older woman into the chamber. The doctor led the way down the stone steps into the crypt. They could hear Whittaku activity up ahead. Each of them now had one of the Jinnera bombs to hand, ready to throw. Aim at the body, instructed the doctor. The bags will break on impact, and we should get maximum coverage that way. He scouted on ahead, poking his head round the edge of an arched doorway. Six or seven Whittaku were in front of him, facing into a room containing a huge pile of yellow crystals. And on top of the pile perched Rose and the Professor. Rose was hurling crystals at the creatures to keep them at bay. The doctor stepped back into the corridor and signalled for the others to join him. Half a dozen of them, he reported, just inside the door. Are you ready? Kendall and Rez nodded immediately. Hespel and Baker gave each other a reassuring look first. Oi, you lot, over here, cried the doctor, and the Whittaku spun round to face him. Now, he ordered, hurling his first Jinnera bomb at the nearest creature. The others did the same. Five bags of the solution sailed through the air and all hit their targets. As promised, the bags broke on impact, spraying their victims with the liquid. Each of the Whittaku screamed as if on fire. Quickly, another one, shouted the doctor. A second volley flew through the air and again the Whittaku screamed as the liquid burned their hairy skins, but still they kept moving forward. There was no sign of any transformation. The only result was that now the Whittaku were wet and angry and heading directly for the rescue party, talons raised, ready to strike. Something had gone very wrong. Ironically, it was Rose and the Professor who came to the Doctor's rescue. A new hail of Trisilica rained down on the maddened creatures, causing them to turn their attention again to their initial targets. In the confusion, Rez pulled Hespel and Baker back into the corridor. The Doctor and Kendall, however, both had concerns for the women on top of the Crystal Mountain. They ran around the line of creatures and scrambled up the pile of Trisilicate. Nice to see you, said a smiling Rose. You too, the Doctor grinned back at her. The Whittaku were still trying to reach them, so Rose picked up a fresh handful of crystals and continued to lob them at the creatures. Kendall had now joined the women in hurling the largest lumps of trisilica they could find at the creatures. Despite their best efforts, however, the Whittaku were beginning to get much higher up the crystal mountain. Perhaps the others will get help, Rose suggested. The doctor was looking around. Hang about, he said. How do these crystals get here? The locals collect them, the professor answered. Yeah, yeah, I know that, but how do they get here? In a pile like this? They're not going to come through that door with a wheelbarrow full and lob them up here, are they? Rose realised what he was saying. You mean, it's like a coal cellar. Mickey's gran used to live in an old terraced council house which had a coal cellar. If this trisilicate store operated the same way, there must be... A trap door! announced the doctor, delighted. The ceiling to the room was about two metres away from where they were precariously balanced on the trisilicate mountain, and directly above them they could see a wooden trap door. Shall I give you a leg up? suggested the doctor. 
Rose quickly scrambled up into the room above. The doctor then helped the professor to follow Rose to safety. As the professor backed away from the hatch to make room for the doctor and Kendall, sharp talons curled around her neck. Another Whittaku? But this one seemed smaller than the others. A voice close to her ear confirmed that this was no ordinary Whittaku. Close the hatch, it ordered in a husky growl. Rose whirled round in surprise. To her horror, she saw that it was Brother Hugan. He was wearing the Whittaku costume that Rez had been wearing when she first met him. Close the hatch, he repeated, or she dies. Rose? It was the doctor's voice floating up from below. Is there a problem? Rose couldn't take her eyes away from Brother Hugan. He made to rake the talons across the petrified professor's neck. The threat was clear. She really had no choice. With a lump in her throat, Rose flipped the twin doors shut again. Without any torches, Hespel and Baker were literally running in the dark. They had stumbled and fallen more than once and had been forced to slow the pace of their escape. Rez, who knew the terrain best, was leading the way, but he kept having to slow down to allow the other two to catch up. Shh, Baker said suddenly. I think I heard something. Rez looked around, startled. She was right. There were sounds coming from further down the corridor ahead of them. Hello? He called out nervously. Figures appeared in the gloom. It was a group of the natives led by Mother Jaylet and Kaelin. The Whittaku had the Doctor and the others trapped in the crystal store, he told them urgently. The Doctor's generous solution didn't work. Jaylet nodded, grim-faced. The idea was good, but the dose is not strong enough, she told them. She raised her hand and showed them she was holding a sharpened section of ginnon bush. Maybe this will be more effective. It's coated in the thickest gin and bean paste. The new weapons were about half a metre in length, long enough to throw or jab at the enemy, though not without risk. You would have to get very close to use these, commented Rez as he took a weapon for himself. Then we shall just have to be careful, Jaylet said firmly, and headed towards the fight. The Doctor and Kendall were back to back on the summit of the Trisilicate Mountain, surrounded on all sides by Whittaku. The creatures were getting closer with every passing second. The Doctor's eyes were caught by some activity near the doorway. Look! he cried, pointing. There was a blaze of light as fresh torches came into the chamber, illuminating the Leiloran counter-attack. Hespel and Baker led the charge. They hurled their spears into the nearest two Whittaku. It's the cavalry, grinned the doctor. To his delight, the two creatures attacked by Hespel and Baker were already shaking, convulsing and beginning to transform. The rest of the Leilorans flooded into the chamber, firing their spears at the remaining Whittaku. The creatures all fell quickly, shuddering and began to change shape. The immediate danger over, the doctor and Kendall clambered down and joined the rescue party. Among the recovering Leilorans, who had recently been Whittaku, were the missing Arak, Sarenta and Purin. All three were very pale and shaken, having spent longest in the transformed state. As soon as the victims were able to walk, the other Leilorans began taking them back up to the surface. Mother Jaylet came over to join the doctor and the humans. Thank you, the doctor said. It was your idea, replied Jaylet. We just improved on the delivery method. 
Well, I'm glad you did. The doctor glanced around. Have we accounted for everyone who was missing? Everyone except Brother Hugan. The doctor looked suddenly alarmed. Rose and the professor! Kendall knew immediately what the doctor was thinking. What is the room above this chamber? he demanded of the native woman. The hall of offering. What kind of offering? asked the doctor darkly, not liking the sound of that at all. It was used in the dark times, Jaylet explained. Our ancestors were more primitive. They used to believe that it was necessary to make sacrifices to Lelora. Sacrifices? What kind of sacrifices? Mother Jaylet looked away, unable to meet his gaze. People, she said. They used to sacrifice people. Professor Shulu was utterly helpless. The madman had made Rose tie her hands and her feet, and she'd been left lying on the cold stone floor at the foot of one of the giant statues that lined the ceremonial chamber they were now in. Rose, meanwhile, was lying on a stone altar. The Leiloran shaman had produced a vicious-looking curved knife, which he had offered up to the various statues for approval. The professor had feared that he was going to plunge it into Rose's heart without any further delay but instead he had placed the sacrificial knife by her side and started to intone a chant. The shaman was now performing some kind of dance, crying out like a wild animal as he flailed his arms around. The talons on his costume scythed through the air above Rose's prone body. Suddenly, the professor was aware of a new arrival. Out of the corner of her eye, she had the impression of a familiar, dark-suited figure striding confidently into the room. Hey, old fella, shouted the doctor, coming to a halt. I want a word with you. The shaman stopped his chant and reached for the knife. Hold it right there, ordered the doctor, in such a commanding voice that Brother Hugan obeyed. Laylora must be appeased, the Laylora insisted. Laylora doesn't need you to kill anyone. The shaman shook his head. She is angry. Only the blood of an outsider will appease her. You reckon? Because I don't. Thing is, you see, the doctor continued, pointing at the shaman, you've almost got it right. Laylora is like a living creature. This planet, it's perfect. Everything in balance. Only the trouble is, it's too perfect. Stick something in this system that doesn't belong here and all hell's let loose. Behind the doctor, at the entrance to the hall, Kendall, Baker, Rez and some of the other Laylorans entered. The doctor didn't look round. Laylora doesn't need a sacrifice. She doesn't need appeasing. She needs relief. You remember when the humans came before? Mr Gwillan and his people? They worked it out. Their presence here caused the same reaction. The doctor could see that he was getting close now. The shaman was listening to him. If we all just leave, everything will go back to normal. No more earthquakes, no wild weather, no random electromagnetic pulses firing out into space, crippling spaceships. In his peripheral vision, the doctor could see that Rez was slowly crawling around the edge of the massive room. No! Brother Hugan cried, raising the knife into the air again. The doctor dashed forward. Keep back! shouted Brother Hugan warningly. The doctor stopped. 
his hands held out. He flicked the quickest of glances sideways and saw that Rez had reached a statue near to the altar and had begun to climb up it. The doctor just needed to buy him some more time. If Laylora needs a sacrifice, then give her a proper one, suggested the doctor, changing tack. How about an alien with two hearts? One who's the very last of his kind? Now that's what I call a sacrifice, eh? The shaman took a step back, considering. Suddenly, a new voice rang out. It was Professor Shulu, now free from her bonds. Don't take him. Take me. It was my spaceship that crashed here. If you want a sacrifice, take me. Both the shaman and the doctor were dumbfounded. Then another new voice was heard. No, not the professor. Take me. This was Kendall, calling out in a firm voice. The doctor smiled. Maybe this was better than his plan. Now, where had Rez got to? Behind the statue, Rez was stuck. He had thought he would be able to sneak around the back of the head of the giant stone Whitiku and reach the blind side of Brother Hugan. However, now he realised that the gap between the statue and the wall of the chamber was narrower than he had anticipated. Taking a deep breath, he tried to squeeze through the narrow gap but only succeeded in getting wedged in place. Now he had no option but to push against the wall with his legs and try to shift the statue enough for him to slip through. Slowly, but with increasing speed, the statue began to rock on its base. Brother Hugan looked around him in confusion. Now there was a chorus of offers. From all sides lay Lauren and human voices called out in turn, offering themselves as sacrifices in place of Rose. He raised the sacrificial knife high in the air. No! he screamed. Now, Rose! shouted the doctor, pulling her to safety. Brother Hugan brought down the knife and cried out in frustration, fury and pain as the blade met the stone altar with a bone-jarring impact at the exact spot where, mere moments ago, Rose had been lying. From above, a sudden shadow engulfed him as the statue finally unbalanced and came crashing down. Dust and debris shot into the air as it shattered into hundreds of pieces. The doctor, still holding on to Rose, rolled clear of the destruction. For a moment, no one dared to breathe. Silence and dust competed to fill the chamber. The doctor helped Rose to her feet and, without comment, gave her a hug. Finally, he spoke to end the deathly quiet. Any chance of a nice cup of ginera, then? Smiles and cheerful chatter broke out all around the room. And then the earthquake hit. Ugly black cracks zigzagged across the floor. Parts of the wall and the ceiling were falling, showering the entire area with yet more dust and rubble. Somehow, the Doctor and Rose managed to reach the relative safety of the corridor. The tunnels, narrow and well-constructed, were less vulnerable to the massive earth tremors, which were continuing to shake the world. The dusty but smiling figure of Rez emerged from the chaos and hurried to join Rose. Everyone got out, he gasped. Except Brother Hugan, added the Doctor grimly. As they hurried towards the exit, the aftershocks continued to rumble. The entire complex seemed to be shaking itself to pieces.
Some loose rocks in the tunnel wall shook free and fell like lethal hailstones. One hit Rose on the side of the head, and she stumbled and fell, causing Rez to run into her. Ahead, the doctor was more concerned with the professor, who had fallen herself. He helped the older woman to her feet and put an arm round her for support. Kendall came back to assist him. I'll get the professor out, the doctor promised him. Can you go back and check on Rose and Rez? Kendall nodded and hurried back into the dust-filled tunnel. A few metres along he came across the two youngsters, Rez cradling Rose in his arms, and he could see blood on her forehead. To his relief, it was just a flesh wound. Rose was already stirring. She'll be fine, he told Rez. Another aftershock hit, bringing more of the roof down. When the dust settled, Kendall was not surprised to find that the tunnel was blocked, cutting them off from the escape route the doctor and the professor had taken. There's another way, Rez told him, helping a slightly groggy Rose to her feet. He started back the way they had just come. Rose and Kendall followed him. In the rapidly collapsing maze of tunnels, a figure stirred and groaned. A fissure had opened up under the altar stone, so instead of being crushed by the falling statue, Brother Hugen had been saved. Nearby, a statue of Laylora lay partially buried in rubble. Brother Hugen fell to his knees in front of the cracked face and gave thanks. Kneeling, he brought his head down to touch the ground in front of his goddess. He felt a burst of energy running through his body and began to shake. It was happening again. The change. He closed his eyes and gave in to the agony and the ecstasy of transformation. His skin sprouted heavy fur. His bones cracked and reformed. Once again, he was becoming Laylora's champion. She still had need of her Whitiku. Rez, Rose and Major Kendall had found a staircase and were making good progress in getting away from the most dangerous lower levels. The only problem was that they hadn't found a way out of the stairwell. Rock falls had blocked the exits. They climbed higher and started to come across narrow window slits and Rose was able to look out and see that they had reached the roof level. They were inside the tower that the doctor had climbed which was, almost unbelievably, still standing. Rose could now see that there were two routes to the observation post at the top. The path that curved around the outside of the tower and the spiral stone staircase that ran up the middle. The problem was there was no way to get from one to the other except, presumably, at the very top. Rose looked out of another window and surveyed the state of the temple below. A huge part of the front of the building had already collapsed and she feared the rest would go the same way at any moment. Then she heard something that was even more frightening. Something clambering up the staircase after her. Something big and angry. A moment later, they all heard the familiar roar. A Whitaku. They had no choice but to continue their ascent. The doctor was using night vision binoculars to scan the area of the main temple for any sign of Rose. He thought he saw a movement on the central observation tower and switched the device to maximum magnification. This was enough for the whole of one of the window slits to fill his screen, and now he could make out figures. Rose, thank goodness, followed by Rez, and then the sturdy figure of Kendall. 
But then he realised that there was a fourth shape moving lower down the tower. A Whittaku. The doctor had to do something and he had to do it fast. Nearby, the professor and her two remaining crew members were recovering from their ordeal. The doctor hurried over to them, pulling out a handful of trisilicate crystals from his pockets. Do you think this is enough trisilicate to get your ship in the air? he asked. The staircase opened out into a wider space covered with a pyramid-shaped roof. The observation deck. Across the way, Rose could see the exit that led to the external staircase. She hurried over to take a look. It seemed a long way down. Kendall was checking out the possibilities of the room for defence. We should try and hold this position, he announced. What? Rose didn't understand. Shouldn't we start going down now? Kendall shook his head. We'd be too vulnerable. It's totally exposed. Another aftershock and we could go flying. And our hairy friend below could just leap down on top of us. We'd be best holding here and trying to neutralise the enemy combatant. What do you mean, neutralise? demanded Rez. Rose understood. It was military speak. You mean kill him, don't you? Kendall nodded and moved to take up position at the head of the stairwell. A moment later, the hairy beast swung into sight. Kendall fired his weapon, shooting a massive hole in the wall and forcing it back. The creature roared furiously and then went quiet. Rez and Rose looked at each other. What next? The doctor was concentrating hard, taking in the complex bank of controls in front of him. He was sitting in the pilot's chair on the bridge of the Humphrey Bogart. Alongside him, Anya Baker and John Hespel had worried expressions on their young faces. It had taken them three years at the academy to get the most basic piloting qualification, and now the doctor was proposing to fly the ship with barely a read-through of the manual. Right then, announced the doctor. Let's get started. Fire retros. Retros in three, two, one. Retros fired, Baker announced calmly. Release gravity locks. Releasing. For a moment, everything seemed to be frozen. And then the doctor eased the control joystick forward slightly, and the ship began to rise. Rose realised that things had gone quiet. She raised her head and looked back down the stairs. Perhaps he's given up and gone away. Kendall shook his head. I doubt it. Then, from some way below, they heard crashing and banging. Rocks and debris were falling from the exterior of the tower. What's he trying to do? Bring the tower down? Rez asked. Suddenly, Rose became aware of something in her peripheral vision. She looked down and saw to her horror that the Whittaku was on the external staircase. It must have knocked a hole through the wall to get out there and was now rapidly closing in on their position from outside. But now a new noise was filling the air, and a dark shadow was blocking out the rising sun. Rose squinted up. It was the Humphrey Bogart. The battered ship was approaching in hover mode. Rose could see that the airlock was open, and, inside, she could make out the Professor and Hespel. Slowly, the ship edged sideways towards them. Our ride's here, Rose said. And so's our other friend, added Rez in a tone of panic. 
Rose turned and saw that the Whittaku was standing in the gap that allowed access to the external staircase. She recognised the necklace hanging around its neck. It's Brother Hugan, she gasped. The spaceship was now a metre or two away from the observation platform. From inside the airlock, the professor called out to them. Jump! Rez took a look at the leap and grinned. Now or never, he shouted to Rose and started to run. He took off like a long jumper and seemed to hang in the air for eternity. And then, clang, he was landing on the metal floor of the airlock and Professor Shulu was hauling him in. Your turn, Rose, he called back across the gaping chasm. Rose crossed her fingers and ran. She ducked past the creature and jumped into space. A moment later, she felt the professor and Hespel grab hold of her and pull her to safety. She turned to look back across at the platform. The transformed Brother Hugan was snapping at her heels, and then the creature lurched and fell to its knees. Behind it stood Kendall, weapon in hand. Unbelievably, the Whittaku just rolled over and got back on its feet. Rose and the others could only look on in horror as the old soldier and the transformed Leyloran confronted each other. Kendall fired repeatedly, but the Whittaku only swiped impatiently at the blaster with a sweep of one of his powerful arms. I can't hold this position much longer! It was the doctor's voice crackling out of the intercom speaker. The ship began to rock violently. Just one more minute, urged the professor desperately. Get clear, shouted Kendall, and jumped forward, surprising the Whittaku with a frontal attack. The two combatants staggered to the edge of the platform, and then fell together, still locked in combat. The fall seemed to happen in slow motion, the two figures crashing again and again into the widening tower, bouncing off like ragdolls before finally coming to rest on the shattered roof of the temple. Without a word, the professor hit the control to close the outer doors, and the ship moved away. Rose stood at the entrance to the tent and looked out. Although it was daylight, the sky was dark with clouds and the rain was coming down in sheets. The storm had been raging for hours now and showed no signs of abating. So much for paradise, she commented, turning back to where the doctor was sitting with Mother Jaylette. As soon as the storm breaks, the Humphrey Bogart will take off, promised the doctor, and then things will get back to normal. What about us? Rose asked. The doctor grinned. Well, obviously we have to get going too. I'm sure Leilora is as allergic to us as she is to the crew of the Humphrey Bogart. That still leaves me, though. Rose had forgotten Rez, who was sitting with Kalen at the rear of the tent. It's all my fault, isn't it? The bad weather, the earth tremors. Everything started when I arrived, didn't it? Rose could see that Rez already knew the answer to his question and was resigned to it. The doctor knew it too. I think so. The older you got, the worse the allergic reaction. The arrival of the Humphrey Bogart was the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know what to do. All I've ever known is life on Leilora. Rez sounded heartbroken. I'm sure we can take you somewhere you'll be happy, can't we? Rose looked at the doctor for approval, but he was on his feet and at the tent flap. 
Looks like the rain's stopping, he muttered, avoiding the question. Let's go and see the Humphrey Bogart off. The bridge was deserted, but the doctor guessed where the professor would be and headed for her quarters. He knocked politely on the open door and stepped into the room. I'm sorry about your uncle, he said. The professor looked up and he could see that she'd been crying. Thank you. He died a soldier's death. Protecting others, it, it, it's what he would have wanted. You, uh, you know that this place has to be taken off the maps again, don't you? The professor nodded sadly. Shame, isn't it? Well, better paradise lost than paradise never seen, suggested the doctor kindly. There was one more thing, he added. You're going to ask me about the boy, aren't you? He's got no one. He has now, the professor assured him. I'm probably too old to be much of a mother. That was never going to be my story. But I can be a guardian and a guide. He'll need that, the doctor said, smiling. The professor sat down and put her face in her hands. Something seemed to have changed in her since her adventures in the temple. It hurt me so much. When my parents died, she began to explain in a quiet voice. I promised myself I'd never feel like that again. I thought if I didn't allow myself to get close to anyone, I'd be protected. But I was wrong, wasn't I? Life hurts, agreed the doctor. Things change. People come and go. Nothing lasts. But if you don't engage with people, if you, if you don't allow yourself to care... He stopped and let the thought hang in the air for a moment. Well, if you do that, then you're not really alive, are you? I'll see what I can do she said after a long silence. About the boy. The doctor headed for the door. Thank you, he whispered, and then he was gone. Rose found Rez sitting at the edge of the clearing made by the Humphrey Bogart when it first landed. The doctor had returned the ship to precisely the same spot it had originally occupied to minimise the impact on the sensitive planet. What's it like out there? Rez asked her. Rose hesitated. How could she possibly answer that? You'll love it, she said finally. It's an adventure. He smiled. Have you been travelling for a long time? It's hard to say, she confessed. But however long it's been, it's not been long enough. There's so much out there to discover. Some of it is dangerous and some of it is ugly, but it's never dull. She reached out and patted his hand. You can trust me on this. And she smiled to herself, thinking of her own father. You never know. You may have family out there, waiting to meet you. Rez was doing an endless round of hugs with various Laylorans, finally coming to his adopted mother and sister. Both Jaylette and Kaylin had tears in their eyes. They gripped Rez tight and squeezed hard, knowing that they were unlikely ever to see him again. 
Finally, Rez prized himself loose and joined Professor Shulu, who led him into the airlock. As the doors closed, Rez looked back one last time at his paradise home, and then turned away. The Doctor and Rose ushered Jaylette, Kalen and the other Laylorans away as the huge metal ship slowly lifted off the ground. Within a minute there was nothing to see but a dot in the sky, and a moment later, even that had disappeared completely. The Doctor and Rose walked back to the TARDIS in silence. Rose took the opportunity to take one last look at the wonderful planet, and her heart went out to poor Rez, who had been forced to leave this paradise. Will he be all right? she wondered out loud. I think so, the Doctor answered. Humans are very adaptable. But this is all he's ever known. Until now, the Doctor smiled. Anyway, it's the only way this place can get back to its normal state. A paradise planet that no human can ever visit. That's a bit sad, isn't it? The doctor shrugged, searching in his pocket for the TARDIS key. You know that feeling on a winter's day, when it snowed in the night and you come downstairs and everything is different. There's a blanket of white and it's all perfect, untouched. Yeah. Rose said, and you want to go out in it, but at the same time you don't, because then it'll get mushy and covered in footprints and spoil. The doctor nodded. It's the same thing here. Nothing lasts forever, not even the paradise planet. But it can last for a bit longer yet. They went inside. Between the beautiful beach and the fantastic forest, a wind whipped up out of nowhere, and with a wild trumpeting sound, the blue police box exterior of the TARDIS gently faded from view. Elsewhere, the SS Humphrey Bogart punched a hole into hyperspace. Here, said the professor, setting a mug of a hot liquid in front of the young man who was now dressed in a spare uniform. Rez took the mug and sniffed suspiciously. The professor smiled. I made sure I took some ginnin with us. Can't expect you to get used to tea overnight, can we? Rez studied the woman who had promised to look after him in this strange new life. She seemed more relaxed now, younger, even though she had been forced to abandon her long-sought paradise. She was looking through the scant possessions that he had brought on board with him and held up the strange cube that had been packed into his escape pod. Do you know what this is? she asked him. Rez shook his head. He had spent hours looking at it over the years, but its meaning had always eluded him. It was just a plain plastic cube as far as he knew. It's a memory cube, she told him and started running her fingers over each of the surfaces, looking around for something. Ah, she exclaimed, as she found the hidden switches. The cube lit up as it burst into life. A hologram field sprang into view above one of the sides. It showed two humans, a handsome but slightly worried-looking man, and a beautiful young woman with long blonde hair. They began to talk to the baby son they were about to place in an escape pod.
Rez watched and listened, tears rolling down his face. His parents were long dead, but here at last they were able to speak to him. Petra Shulu moved across the room to sit next to him and placed an arm around his shoulders. Now we can find out who you are and where you came from, she whispered to him gently. She realised that she'd been given a new and much more valuable quest to follow. And this time, she would not be alone. Doctor Who, The Price of Paradise by Colin Brake was read by Sean Dingwall. It was produced by Kate Thomas and is published by BBC Audiobooks. Hello, I'm Colin Brake. I wrote The Price of Paradise, and I'm with Sean Dingwall, who has just read the audiobook. Hello there. Hi, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was fun. Did you enjoy that? I did enjoy it, yeah. It was, uh, I've been sat in this studio for quite a long time, uh, and fortunately, I thought it was a fantastic story, and that makes things a lot easier. That's very kind of you to say so. Yeah. Well, you've been in Doctor Who recently, so you're, you're known mm. for being Pete Tyler. You've done a lot of adult drama, things like Touch and Evil and post-Watershed stuff, was it a mm. real pleasure to do something that was going to reach a family audience? And have you noticed the difference when you've been out and about? you get stopped by kids? And Well, funnily enough, I, I sort of tend to get stopped by the kids' parents. And uh, uh, and the kids are kind of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true, actually. I've always sort of seemed to have done more, more serious stuff. And um, it, the loveliest thing, actually, about it was doing something that my niece and my nephew could watch. And that yeah. was... Uh, that was a real pleasure because they're, you know, they're fanatical about it. Um, so they they really appreciated that, and uh, you know they were they were quite proud. I was quite sort of touched by it, really. You know, <laughs> suddenly you were the cool uncle. Yeah, exactly. Instead of sort of being you know running around with a gun or being shot at or something that their that their mum wouldn't let them watch, which is absolutely <laughs> fair enough. So how was it to perform the audiobook as opposed to just reading it? Because you're you're playing all the characters, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's interesting actually because it's it's almost not the um, the other characters that, that make it harder. You know, you sort of change your voice slightly, and that can be a bit tricky at times when there's, you know, three or four people having a conversation. But, but it's, it's the sort of investment, the sort of emotional investment that you have to put into it because you can't just read it. Otherwise, um, if you just read it, people aren't really going to listen. They're going to tune out. So you have to concentrate and really, um, you know, in, invest a lot in it, uh, which is obviously very different, as you, as you, as you know, to... Uh, to, to writing for, for TV, for writing a screenplay. I mean, yeah. It's a similar kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, you have to get inside the characters, get inside their hearts. And... Yeah. So you've, you've worked with the, both the new Doctors. I have, And, and yes. of course, Billy and Camille, your, your screen family. What's it like yes. working with them? Um, oh, it's great fun. I mean, it was just genuinely really, really good fun, you know, to, um, to, to play this part. Um, it was quite interesting going back and doing, doing the second series in an alternate in an alternate world because 
you know, I have this sort of relationship with Camille where we kind of just take the mickey out of each other all the time. Um, and that hadn't, you know, after the first series, that hadn't gone away. In fact, the second series, we did a bit more of that and took the mickey all the time. Was it really. very weird making that back in sort of the winter and then having to sort of sit on that experience before it went out? Because it was a big secret that the Daleks were going to turn up and, and the Cybermen were going to be there. And you must have shot that what back in December, January. It was freezing. I mean, that's my one sort of, you know, uh, enduring memory, actually, of Doctor Who. Was, it was so cold. And it's always the way. You guarantee you're filming something when it's supposed to be Christmas, you'd probably film in summer. In the and, summer, and, and, and vice versa. Always the way. And it's, yeah. it's, it, whenever, whenever you want to do a night shoot, it's always the coldest night of the year. Absolutely. Yeah. I found that. You can imagine this would be this would be a nice one to film, though, wouldn't it? Something nice. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Find where, some really nice Paradise Island would be lovely, wouldn't it? Where, where did you get that? Where, where did that? where did that come from? This sort of, the I'm setting not sure. and the books can go places that they can't go with a film crew from from Cardiff. And I'd come up with the idea of, of um, Paradise um, and a somewhere that the planet that would be allergic to people. So it's a very, I mean, it's a topical subject as well, isn't it? It is, it is. And, and if, it, if it introduces that to a wider audience... Well, then... exactly. I, I, well, it is an, a thing that children are getting into. My, my children at school are doing a lot of work on, on uh, environment and eco this and eco that. And, Good. You know, why not? About time. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, we did. I remember back in the 70s, it was, I remember being told to plant a tree for 73 or something. Really? <laughs> Plant some more in 74. I don't know what happened in 75. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing rhymed in 75. They stopped planting trees. So the, the other, other thing I wanted to do was not have a, a traditional monster, um, have something that was slightly more interesting, which is why the, the monsters aren't really monsters. They're just um, transformed locals, like antibodies right. or something. OK, OK, which, yeah. And the, the, also the other thing was to make sure that the first time you see them, they are... Not the monster. It's a it's a man in a suit or a boy in a suit. Yeah, that was a very yeah, it's playing touch. games with the whole the whole notion Absolutely. about the kind of monsters you expect to see. And uh, well, you've you faced monsters that are, are both in a suit and in a tin can, haven't you? <laughs> What's it like on a set acting against Cybermen and Daleks? Do you have to? Is it playground pretending you're it's doing? It's exactly that's that's all it is. It really is. You're just being back in the playground. Um, you know, every every now and again, you kind of catch yourself doing it and kind of have to get a bit of sort of reality check. I'm a grown man and I'm running away from men dressed in plastic suits. But um, that's pretty much what it is, using your imagination, really. Um, in fact, for the uh, the Reapers in, in Father's Day, there was nothing there. It was, that was all green screen. So, um, you know, I'd be reacting to something in the sky. It's an ongoing theme, is it not, with Doctor Who, the uh, people who are actually trapped inside an alien's body, which actually the, the Whittaku kind of are, aren't they? It is. I mean, I think it's, it, there's, a, there's a long tradition of, I think what they call it, body horror, about being transformed into the monster oh, or okay. the monster within. So it's um, a sort of um, primeval fear. of. Yes, I think so. It, 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 it's, it's one of those things that horror movies are always going on. Zombies are you know, being transformed into something. Yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, werewolves, of course, which Doctor has done as well. So yeah, I think that's a regular SF or horror sure. uh, notion about, about the monster within. But like I said, in this case, our monsters aren't really monsters. And no. Even poor old brother Hoogan, who's, who's a bit of a nutter, yeah. is, is, is not really a baddie, is he? No, no, he, he wants the right thing. He does. He I doesn't mean, want his planet to be destroyed. Exactly. He's just, uh, and, he, and he thinks he knows the way to go about it. It's the yes. old-fashioned way, which maybe had something going for it. He's an extremist environmentalist. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> yes. Which is one of the lines, actually, in this, isn't it? This it is, is yeah. I think that yeah, we've been invaded by extreme environmentalists. Yes, that's right. So, I mean, as a... As a person, what kind of monsters or creatures in, in, in fiction would have frightened you? Is it things like zombies and being taken over by something? or um, Zombies never did, but I think the only reason for that is 
probably most of the films about zombies were kind of quite tongue in cheek, weren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's the power. Yeah. That's the power of, of of a book or an audio. It's just you and the storyteller. Yes. And and the pictures are in your head. But when it's been read to you, it's like being read a, a story at bedtime by your, by your parent when you're young. It can be as scary or as funny or as engaging as, as anything. As, as you want it to be, exactly. really. Yeah. And actually, actually, you do get that in horror films where you don't see the monster for, well, until the very end. And then, then it's usually a disappointment, you know, exactly. it's, it's lurking in the shadows. <laughs> well, there is a, a, similar... school of, a school of thought, isn't it, that, that if it's more exciting to be teased about what might be around the corner yes. rather than going around the corner and seeing it. Fear of the unknown. That's the unknown. old um, Hitchcock approach. Sure, you let your imagination run riot. Man. Absolutely. What about you? What are you doing next? You? Any more exciting um, sci-fi parts or Nothing. is it back to playing cops? I'm not sure yet, actually. There's a, there's a few things sort of, you know, bubbling around, but... Um, uh, nothing that's maybe kind of jump up with joy yet, so we'll see. Oh, we'll see you on the jelly soon, I'm sure. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs>